My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in two ways. Number one is you can go and write a brief review on iTunes. Or number two is you can simply go to interviewthefuture.com and make a donation. Today, for the second time in about, I don't know, a month or several weeks, my guest on the show would be University of Chicago history professor Ada Palmer. Ada works on the history of science, religion, heresy, free thought, atheism, censorship, books, printing, and the networks of money and power that enable cultural production. She is also a science fiction author. I just finished her massive uh, first three book of a, of a four book series called Terra Ignota. I just finished the third uh, book and I'm looking forward to the fourth book coming out. Um, and that series explores a 25th century civilization of voluntary citizenship and borderless nations. So today our topics will be science fiction, the present, history and any laws of history if there may be such things. Also perhaps other topics such as free will and maybe even censorship. So welcome to Singularity uh, FM Ada. Thank you for having me back. It was so much fun last time. So this is a treat. Fantastic. I enjoyed it immensely, I have to say. And by the way, to our viewers and listeners who may not have seen the first episode, I highly recommend you guys go and start there if you haven't seen that one first, because I will do my best not to repeat any of the questions that I asked Ada last time. So, um, and and also we had uh, I had tons of very good feedback uh, from the previous interview, so it's definitely yeah. very much worth uh, watching or listening to. And just to give you two notable examples out of many, by the way, one was Cory Doctorow is extensively blocked about uh, that interview and said he had a number of aha moments as a, or uh, during the, the, the two hour, two and a half hours of listening of it and said it mm -hmm. was worth every minute of it multiple times. And then also Wired.com, which is the, the website of Wired magazine, linked to, uh, to that uh, in support of one of the conclusions in a very recent article that they they wrote. So I highly recommend whoever hasn't checked it out, go check it out, guys. It's totally brilliant. It's totally worth it. Did you have any any feedback? Yeah, I had a lot of people say that that they really loved it. And also a lot of people say I couldn't believe that it was that long and I still loved it. You know, that really shocked me too, because I loved your book. Uh, and, I, and, and to be honest, I love you, but, but I think you're kind of a geek and your book is a very sophisticated uh, book that requires a lot of work to be put forward yeah. by the reader. Lots. And to me, that was kind of a shock because uh, my, if I were to guess, I would have said most people would not have listened to that and would have uh, not have read your book. It's just like one of those brilliant masterpieces that is not a popular uh, you know, think simply because it requires so much effort on the part of the audience. Yeah, and that's what I expected, and that's what Tor expected, which is one of the reasons the copies of the first book were scarce at the beginning, because we expected not a lot of readers would want to put in as much work as it is to read those books. And then we were 
happily delighted by how many people there are who want to put in a lot of work for a heavy read that then is full of ideas. So a good comment on the fact that there are a lot of great people uh, who, who really do like engaging with deep, heavy, serious ideas uh, in their leisure reading. Yes, biblical size sort of books <laughs> <laughs> and requiring biblical effort too, but, but totally, totally, totally worth it. Uh, okay, now let me just use this opportunity and sort of take this luxury moment and ask you a couple of personal questions that I didn't have the chance to ask you last time sure. that I think are kind of very interesting personal details. First of all, how many languages do you speak? Depends on how stressed out I am on any given day is my short-term answer because I think many of us have been finding our bandwidth varying a lot during these crises and sometimes I'll turn the computer on and pull up an article in Latin and my brain's just like, nope, not today. Uh, so on a good day, I can read Latin. On a good day, I can read Italian. I can speak terrible Italian. Uh, I have very functional Florentine street Italian because I never formally studied Italian. I just lived there for five years. So I can have long conversations about restaurants, food, Baroque art. Uh, but at the time I tried to uh, take yoga class, I didn't know what bit of my body he was telling me to move to the left because I had plenty of vocabulary relating to Neoplatonism, but not head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Uh, so I have bad Italian, uh, but I can read Italian okay. I have all right French, although my French has been largely devoured by my Italian. So if I begin a sentence in French, it will degenerate into Italian by the middle of the sentence and then end in bad Italian. Uh, I've also studied ancient Greek and Gothic, which is a language we study not to read or write in it, but this is a language that is a cousin, a close relative of Proto-Germanic, which is the ancestor of both English and German. And we don't have texts in Proto-Germanic. We have one sentence. Uh, uh, it's a sentence on a drinking horn. I quoted in book three, in fact. Uh, but it's our only sentence in Proto-Germanic. But we have a translation of chunks of the New Testament into Gothic. And we study it to learn about how English and German were when they were one language, because this is closer to that moment than any text we have in either one. Uh, so that's a linguistics language, not a functional language. Uh, and then I've watched sufficient anime that I can communicate a lot of straightforward concepts of Japanese, but only in the manner of a rude 14-year-old male ninja, because that's... <laughs> <laughs> what you learn when you learn your Japanese that way. And I'm constantly in Florence listening to Japanese tourists being lost and realizing where they want to go and having to make the decision, which is going to be more awkward, Wait, just letting them wander lost or directing them where they need to go in the manner of a rude 14-year-old male ninja. Uh, so I just apologize, then tell them where to go, then apologize again. It usually works out. Wow. <laughs> so, so that would be English, Italian... Then from the dead languages, we have Gothic, Latin, Ancient Greek, and then French and Japanese. That would make it seven. Yes, but with very variable degrees of function and, and formality of study as well. Still, still very impressive. And, and I know you're sort of like very modest and, and under-representing yourself, uh, but, but proving my point that you're a total geek. And then on top of that, there's the, the other thing, which I was listening, a perform I was watching a performance by you, uh, and, and I guess your co-performer uh, co of Viking songs and Viking yes. music. Now, 
Where do the Viking music and songs come come in? Like, and so the Viking comes from one source, and the music comes from another source. So the the source on the music is that when I was a tiny kid, I was the youngest of a group of kids that were I think I was five or six that were part of an experiment by a music theory teacher associated with Peabody, uh, who wanted to see whether she could teach high school and college level music theory to little kids through gamification. And so I did a program of multiple years of not just doing instruments, which I was also doing, but being in these gamified music theory courses where we would play clapping games and so on, designed to teach circle of fifths, et cetera. Uh, as a result of which I developed very strong composing instincts when young. And then now I compose close harmony, polyphonic acapella in a somewhat Renaissance, somewhat folk style and it just sort of flows naturally one of these interesting cases where when you learn something very young i can't produce or explain the terms for most of the music theory stuff that i'm doing but it's instinctively in there in the way that gamification does so that's where the music composition comes from uh, then i've enjoyed biking mythology ever since i was a tiny kid um, uh, i remember my dad telling me at one point that uh my Parents, my mom had been sending me to Sunday school at one point, and uh, apparently I asked the priests uh, why there was a special school for Christian mythology and not Viking mythology and Greek <laughs> mythology, which was not the most welcome of questions, but I think it's a great question. And uh, I, late, later on, as I started studying the primary sources, I'm very interested in Viking metaphysics. And so the next novel series that I'm starting now that Terrigno has done is looking at Viking mythology with a focus on ethics and metaphysics. I think one of the challenges that we have in approaching Viking mythology and indeed many mythologies is that the study of them that was done in the 19th century, which still strongly informs most mythology books we have now, presumed that all polytheisms had fundamentally the same metaphysics and the same ethics and that it was a sort of homogenous Greco-Roman metaphysics and ethics. So when you look at earlier 20th century mythology books, they talk about this is the god of this in this mythology, this is the god of this in this mythology, as if the worldviews that go with them are about the same. Uh, and so it's very challenging to then scrap what we learned from that and try to go through the primary sources and get at the fact that we have radically different worldviews and radically different uh, metaphysics from our different polytheistic earlier belief systems and in some cases present belief systems. So in the case of Vikings, what excites me most is their answer to the question of theodicy. So theodicy is the philosophical question of the existence of evil, right? Why, why is there evil? And most different macro worldviews, many of which are religions, some of which are not, have a different address to the question of theodicy. So we have Pandora's box, which is one way of explaining why there is evil in the world. Uh, Christian notions of providence or earlier Stoic notions of providence are another answer to the question of theodicy. Uh, Plato's narratives about this being a shadow world that is the real world is another approach to the question of theodicy. Uh, and many other belief systems or mythologies have particular narratives about where different bad things came from, which are part of their theodicies. Viking theodicy is backwards. Uh, given that the universe is fundamentally uninhabitable, why is there good? 
right? We're, we're looking at a worldview that's developed on the very edge of the inhabitable world. The fundamental elements of the universe are ice and fire. In the beginning, all there is is ice, fire, chaos, darkness, and a spring with snakes and poison coming out of it. The question isn't, given that the world is fundamentally bountiful, as somebody growing up in Mediterranean Greece <laughs> will easily assume, given that the world is fundamentally bountiful, why do bad things happen? The question is, given that the world is fundamentally almost impossible to survive, given that every winter it's suspenseful as to whether you'll make it through, what terrible things did the gods have to do to carve out a space for survival for humanity, for there to be anything other than the ice and fire, which is clearly what the world is made of? It breeds a very different ethics, uh, an ethics that is a very different attitude toward dastardly and underhanded action uh, as being a necessity rather than a violation of a fundamentally just or kind world. Uh, and so I'm very interested in that, in communicating those ethical uh, elements of the mythology as I narrativize it in the songs. So the songs try to just tell different bits of the myths. You know, there's one of the songs, which is the creation myth. There's one that's about the relationship between Odin and Loki. And they try to narrate basically the myths themselves with my own investigations of the ethics. The novel will then go a bit further and be representing the world and the metaphysics and digging deep into the primary sources. Focusing more on the metaphysics than on the characters, where usually when we get Viking myth stuff, we're excited by the characters and less excited by the world and happy to transport those characters into other worlds to see what they do. So I, I just can't help it but ask you now, but 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 if you can give me like the, the, the simplified answer perhaps, what's your take on the Thor series, the Marvel movie series? I mean, they're fun. I also have read Marvel comics for ages, and it's just a very different beast from uh, from anything <laughs> that it's based on. Uh, and it's always been, by nature, multi-author, right? Uh, in my head, the Marvel universe occupies a very similar space to medieval and Renaissance Arthuriana, where there are dozens of different authors, and somebody's version of Arthur is, you know, Thomas Mallory's version of Arthur is going to be radically different from the Arthur in an Italian Renaissance thing versus an earlier Arthur versus a later Arthur. The more you have, the more you compare them to each other, the richer and more interesting it gets. You know, so there are, even within Marvel, there are dozens of different Marvel Lokis. You know, I think personally, when Marvel originally made some of its decisions about porting Viking myth, you know, decades ago, they made some choices that are less interesting than they could have. I think that Odin and Loki being brothers is much more interesting, that original form, uh, which is what most of the myths have be the case, is much more interesting than the sort of Thor and Loki as Cain and Abel, bad son, good son version, which you only get in the preface of Snorri's Edda, uh, but not in the rest of Snorri's Edda, and which I think is just less different from you know, what you would get otherwise. But people have done lots of really awesome things with the characters since, and, you know, they're fun. Uh, they all operate on the 19th century belief that Loki is a trickster god, which is a very complicated and odd belief. Uh, but in the 19th century, there's an expectation that there has to be precisely one of every archetype in every mythos. Uh, and so they're not prepared to recognize the fact that Loki has the third most characteristics of a trickster god of figures in Viking mythology. Uh, that Frigg has more and Odin has the most. But because Odin is father figure and Frigg is mother figure, they couldn't be trickster archetype also. And so Loki's trickster archetypeness gets exaggerated and, and Odin and Frigg's 
trickster archetypeness get erased, and you end up with a world with a trickster and a father and a mother. That's fine. We have lots of those. They're great. A world with three tricksters interacting. Much more interesting. Uh, and the slight differences between them and the ways they come into conflict and don't and the relationship between Odin and his other brothers. and the, you know. So these are all things that when other authors make use of them, it's awesome. And whenever Marvel taps into one of these things, it's, uh, it's lovely when they do. But they also use these characters for radically other stories. I like plurality of stories. That's my favorite thing. Yeah, and speaking for pl plurality, plurality, can I even say this? Plurality of stories? <laughs> I don't know. One of those days. Okay, plurality of stories. Oh, forget it. It's not happening today, obviously. Okay, so, wow. Uh, another movie or series that's super popular among my, my audience, and it's actually a documentary series that you have had something to say something very important about is the the most recent cosmos series mm. hosted by neil degrasse tyson yeah now can you share with us what kind of very pointed criticism did you have about the 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 sort of representation uh of of the uh inquisition within the history of Giordano Bruno or the history of sort of the, the history in general, especially given that you're kind of like an expert on the Inquisition, right? right. So, so share with us your take on how that history is versus how that history got represented in that very popular and very famous series, Cosmos. Yeah, well, and this is, I also have a, a, a technical scholarly article on this coming out in a bit. If people email me, I'm happy to point them at it. But it's less a critique of Cosmos specifically than using Cosmos as a lens on more broadly some of the ways that history gets told and retold in ways that end up generating misinformation incrementally and accidentally. Uh, and one of these factors has to do with our tendency to represent a particular thing or a moment by taking a particular person or case study or event and describing it and using it to represent this pattern and then say this thing happened and it is exemplary of typical of it, it typifies this pattern and so we look at the burning at the stake in 1600 of Giordano Bruno which is an absolutely terrible moment and it is uh, and and it's cruel and it's and it's awful we look at it and say that is the typical relationship that the Inquisition had with science. But if we zoom into documents, and both, for example, Bruno's trial documents and other trial documents from the same period, we rapidly learn two things. One, Bruno's case was actually radically atypical. And if we want to understand what the Inquisition is mostly persecuting, Bruno is the bit that sticks out as odd, not the bit that typifies their activities. And second, and this is very characteristic, not just of the Inquisition, but of censoring bodies in the past in general, what we think they were upset about with Bruno isn't what they were upset about with Bruno. Because we look at Bruno and say, okay, here is a man who believes in multiple worlds, in the possibility of extraterrestrial life on other worlds. Here's a man who's been reading Lucretius, which is this classical work that denies the immortality of the soul and denies that 
the gods participated in creation has creation be a natural phenomenon and process of matter interacting in vacuum and then gradually forming over time into planets and worlds and the worlds gradually developing life so that it sounds radically modern, radically atheistical, radically unchristian, radically anti-theist. And we see those things in Bruno and know that they're there. And so we say, okay, and the church executed him. Clearly they executed him for that. But they didn't execute him for that. We have hundreds of pages of notes of the interviews in which they're talking to him and we know what the charges are and we know what they ask him about. What they're worried about is his use of Aristotle and some of his unusual magical practices and some of his ideas about the soul and astronomy and whether the planets do or don't have power over people. So this astrological question of whether it might be that the planets dictate what happens more than God does, which isn't about atheism. It's about whether we're locked into a mechanical dictation by these angelic planetary beings or whether we're in God's. There's nothing modern about it. Uh, there's only one point in the trial documents where anybody brings up Lucretius. Uh, and it's Bruno, and it's in a discussion, actually, of Aristotle. And then at some point, I forget which doctrine it is that they're asking, do you believe in X? And he says, I heard that Lucretius believes in X, but I think X is stupid, and here are the reasons Lucretius is wrong about X. Uh, at no point did the Inquisitors bring up Lucretius at all. Now, we expect them to, because this is on the top of our list of what we think the Inquisition should believe its enemy to be largely because we have these narratives about secularization being one of the characteristics of modernity and the power of the church being largely gradually undermined by the advent of secular thinking. And so we think the church should be alarmed by secular thinking. Maybe they should have been, but they weren't. Uh, when they're looking at Bruno, what they're worried about is the most theist end of Bruno. Uh, largely because the Inquisition's attitude usually, though not always, was they don't care about the people who are atheists or radical free thinkers or way on the end of the spectrum. They think those people are already damned anyway. They don't care. They're worried about pious people who have a decent shot at getting into heaven, but might be misled by some little detail. And so what they spend most of their energy persecuting isn't the radicals that we look at and recognize ourselves in. Uh, what they spend their energies persecuting are radical versions of Christianity that's like 98% correct in their view and then 10% off. They're so much more worried about Luther at the beginning or Calvin, right? Because Calvinism appeals to people who are super pious, who care deeply about what God wants and about sin and are of the type that is likely to succeed in getting into heaven. And so that's the type that they worry about. Um, there's a great book by Anton Solzhenitsyn called The Spectre of Skepticism in the, uh, in the, is it The Age of Enlightenment? Anyway, The Spectre of Skepticism in something. Uh, and I think it's in there that he talks about documents we have from a raid on a clandestine bookshop. So this is the 18th century when there's lots of printing. And this is one of these underground bookshops that's printing all underground books meaning anything that you're going to want to go and secretly get. Uh, so they're printing philosophical radicalism and theological radicalism and diatribes about how the king is stupid and porn, and these things are together. Uh, and, and I often compare this actually to the relationship between science fiction, fantasy, and horror, like how they're mostly shelved together, 
And they're, they're distinct genres, but they also blur a lot. And so there are works that are just science fiction, works that are just fantasy, and works that are both, and works in all three of those categories that are kind of horror. But there's also the sort of thriller horror section, which doesn't have anything to do with those other kinds of genres. So that's the relationship in the, in the 18th century between radical philosophy, radical politics, and then porn. You know, and, and some things are two out of three and some things are all three and, and they're all sold in the same bookshops. And so they're raiding this clandestine bookshop and they've got Voltaire in there and they've got you know other really rad. They've got uh, not Diderot because he's too careful, uh, but they've got, you know, atheistical tracts and they've got uh, radical diatribes against the king and they've got pornography and they have Jansenist pamphlets about the nature of the Trinity that want to inject elements of Calvinist ethics into Catholicism. No, throw the book at them. Uh, and it's that that they get upset about. And they're like, all the Voltaire in the world doesn't matter. And, you know, the stuff criticizing the king matters slightly. But this thing that's like 98% Catholicism and 2% Calvinism is absolutely the moment in which they freak out. Uh, it's not the adversary we think they should be paying attention to. It's the one they think is their foe. Um, and so when we zoom in, we learn things like Giordano Bruno is one of 12, count them, 12 prosecutions of scientists in the history of the Roman Inquisition. Uh, this in the middle of hundreds of thousands, right, of trials for uh, uh, sympathy, sympathy with Lutheranism, uh, trials that are going on in European empires where they're persecuting and trying to wipe out local religions or trying to make sure that only their variant of Christianity gets into the area. You know, amidst that, there's, you know, Bruno is something we should study, but that we should study as an exception and not as a rule. But because it's so intuitive to assume that the Inquisition's enemy was us, that the Inquisition's enemy was atheism, the Inquisition's enemy was the secular worldview of the present. Right, which even for a modern theist, we do a lot of secular thinking, right? When we're looking at questions of, you know, COVID, will there be a vaccine? We try to solve that question by looking at biology studies, not by reading about God and trying to figure out from the character of God whether he will or won't grant us a COVID vaccine, right? Well, That's I what we mean by secular said he would pray for. Yeah, I mean, and lots of people do do that. But even theism today is very engaged with secular thinking, very engaged with looking at studies. Even flat earthers or biblical literalists will try to support their end with a study, like with an oceanography survey. That's what we mean by modernity having a lot of secular thinking. It's that we all agree that a scientific survey of a thing is a persuasive argument. Whether we're theists or atheists or agnostics, we agree that that is a persuasive argument. Now, somebody who is stubbornly in a particular point of view might say, okay, that argument, I, I nonetheless refuse to accept that argument because this other thing means more to me. But everyone recognizes that when you're having an argument, that's the kind of evidence you can bring in, the kind of evidence you should use. Uh, and when you look at bibl even biblical literalist argumentation today, they're always doing things like citing that survey of the Red Sea that shows the ridge underneath and that shows that the winds could have blown in such a way that it would have made that come above. A Renaissance or a medieval biblical literalist isn't going to make that argument, isn't going to care that there's a ridge. God can make there be a ridge or not be a ridge whenever he wants to. They're going to be much more interested in whether the deeds of God as shown in history 
reflect a God who would or wouldn't do this, or whether the fate of the Israelites reflects, yes, these are chosen people, or no, these aren't a chosen people. That's the kind of argument they're going to make, uh, which points at this fascinatingly important moment that happens circa 1600 with the uh, what I and my undergrad teacher, Alan Kors, call the, uh, the rejection of the presumptive authority of the past, otherwise referred to as uh, the changing in the hierarchy of evidence. And I know I've gone a long way from cosmos, and we can <laughs> zero, zoom back to cosmos in a second because there's more to say about it. But this one is a neat one to think about. Fundamentally, there are three paren, maybe four, and I'll get to that paren in a while, types of argumentation slash evidence that you can present for a thing. One of these is empirical evidence. It A study. I saw it. Right. If you're trying to discuss uh, what color the sky is, you go outside and you look. That kind of thing. Empirical observation based evidence, which might be systematic uh, scientific method study, or it might just be a human being has seen the thing. But either of those are evidence based or observation based empirical argumentation. Another is logic based argumentation logically given that A is true, B must also be true, right? There's, a, there's an egg here. Given that there's an egg here, logically there must have been a bird here that laid the egg. Um, uh, Aristotelian arguments about a thing cannot both exist and not exist at the same time. Descartes' chains of reasoning, uh, where you, you know, given that X is true, we deduce that Y is also true. Given that uh, I perceive myself to be here and exist, I can and I can work out from that that I exist and that I am a thinking thing, and we extrapolate forward. And if you remember math class in high school when you do geometry and they make you do those twenty-seven step proofs that the angle in the triangle equals the other angle in the triangle, even though you know perfectly well at the beginning that the two angles in the triangle equal each other, but you do a thirty-seven step proof anyway to do all the steps one by one. That is a logical argument. These are all examples of logical argument. Um, so it's the second kind. And then the third kind of argumentation is evidence from authority. X person says this is true and X person is reliable, right? Um, you know, so whether this is, you know, this uh, prediction of an election result was on 538 and 538 has really high reliability. That's a, a citation from authority. Or Dr. Fauci on COVID. Right. Or, um, you know, Aristotle says this. Aristotle is an authority. That's another argument from authority. Uh, anything where you're arguing from neither. And Thomas Aquinas said it. Exactly. Before. From whatever, whatever it is. Um, and over time, and especially in that moment around 1600, there was a major shift in which of these three kinds of argumentation people considered to be most persuasive. Right now, we consider empiricism to be most persuasive. And no matter how authoritative the doctor who says blah, if somebody else publishes a study that shows the opposite, the majority of people who really care and read about that study, pay attention, will agree that the study is right and the authoritative doctor is wrong. There will be heterodox views and there will be people who are stubborn about it or who are prejudiced against the young doctor or whatever. But uh, generally speaking, when 
empirical evidence challenges something based on logic or authority, we in modern society go with that evidence-based logic, which is why a biblical literalist cares about that study that found the ridge in the Red Sea, because of recognizing that that is a powerful argument that's going to be more effective in persuading people than quoting the Bible verse will be. Uh, then below that, we have logic. You know, so, for example, if we are aiming our telescopes out into space and we've used mathematical logic to guess that there are black holes, and we've deduced that there are black holes, and we're pretty sure that there are black holes because we've got Schwarzschild's math, we then believe in them even more when we see them, right? When we get our image of the black hole, we're like, yes, we've confirmed the logic uh, because the evidence is stronger than the logic. And then the least of these is the authority, because we're very prepared for authorities to be constantly displaced and replaced by better knowledge, because we expect our knowledge to be growing over time. That is not true of the way evidence is analyzed in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, in which authority is by far the most persuasive, most uh, believed, most uh, strong argument. Logic is the middle and evidence is the bottom. Uh, so that if, if Aristotle says that a bear cub is born as a shapeless lump of meat until its mother bear licks it into turning into the shape of a bear, and no human has actually seen this in the 2,000 years since Aristotle said it, nonetheless, people are going to continue believing and reporting that because who are you, random huntsman who watched a bear be born and says that the bear didn't look like that? Who are you compared to Aristotle, who is such an authority that he's been transmitted over centuries and read by many wise people who confirmed that he was correct? There is this expectation that the authority is the most persuasive thing. And he referenced Thomas Aquinas, who is a master logician. But you'll notice if you actually sit down to read a chapter of, that, of Thomas Aquinas, he makes his beautiful logical proofs. And then when he's done his chain of logical proofs, he's like, and now the piece de resistance, here is a sentence from St. Jerome that says the thing that I just proved. Uh, clearly expecting that to be even more persuasive to you than the logic chain was, even though the logic chain is the focus of stuff. Um, this hierarchy of evidence dominates medieval and Renaissance thinking, and when in doubt, you go with the authority, which of course generates a crisis when authorities disagree with each other. Oh no, what do we do? Jerome says this, others say that. And very long story, very short, efforts to deal with that crisis, efforts to determine what to do when different authorities disagree, kick into high gear in the 1100s, continue in the 1200s, the 1300s, the 1400s, the 1500s, they all have different efforts to try to do it, sequentially not succeeding and not succeeding and not succeeding as the, right, the range of authorities and the range of observations and the range of proposals increases as more ancient works like Lucretius get rediscovered and people are discovering that the ancients disagreed with each other far more than we thought they did when we only had a tiny sliver of them and they were the bits of the ancients monks liked best because that's what survived and was read. So it was naturally the bits that homogenized most with what 4th century to 6th century AD monks wanted and therefore it was a very self-selected subsection of antiquity that made the ancients seem to agree much more than people in the 1400s realized that they did. Uh, and so when you got to 1600, there was a kind of a crisis point at which it was clear 
they were never going to succeed in reconciling these authorities. Therefore, and notice this is right when Bruno is going on. Therefore, in the middle of this crisis, uh, Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes both say the correct solution is to overthrow that hierarchy of evidence and say authority should no longer be the top. For Descartes, the top becomes logic. For Bacon, the top becomes empirical evidence. And for the next century, we then have the which one do we go with logic or empiricism argument, uh, which takes fascinating forms, like both of them agreeing that the stars don't move, uh, both sects, I should say, because they're both dead by the time it's happening, but both sects agreeing that the stars don't move by having angels push crystal spheres around. Like they're both good with, there isn't evidence for that, it doesn't make sense. Uh, but the question is, are they uh, objects moving in vacuum? the way Newton's observations suggest that they are? Or are they objects being blown around in a vortex of some kind of matter because Descartes agrees with Aristotle that logically there cannot be vacuum? That nature abhors a vacuum, that, that it is nonsensical to say nothing is, nothing isn't. You can't say nothing is. Uh, and so the Cartesians insist that no matter how much you're observing, there must be a fluid out there with properties we don't understand that are what's moving the stars around. These are the vortices of Descartes. So that gets launched. But Bruno and all those trials, here's where I circle back to Cosmos. I said there are 12 trials of scientists. They're all within a decade of 1600. They're all in one little patch of time because that's the moment at which there is this peak of anxiety about science and empirical science possibly overthrowing authority. That peak then gets better when both Bacon and Descartes and the major leaders of these movements end up framing their movements in ways that are compatible with Christianity, in Bacon's case, Anglican Protestant Christianity, and Descartes' case, uh, Catholicism. But after that, the anxiety peters off, and, and we're not interested in persecuting uh, scientists anymore. The uh, Inquisition goes right on persecuting Calvinists and Jansenists and uh, the people that it, it's worried about in the next phase of things. Uh, and where the trials of Bruno and of Galileo matter in this, and this goes back to questions of what censorship is for and what the Inquisition's goal is, Bruno's trial extremely unusual. So is Galileo's. There are two of only three actual convictions in these 12 trials. Uh, um, and the fates of Bruno, and especially of Galileo, really scared Descartes, which is why he revises his almost finished treatise to be way more compatible with Orthodox Catholicism, because he's scared. Uh, and so that one trial is important because it does affect the course of science from then on by changing the way Descartes positions himself relative to Christianity, which in turn pivots the whole of how science is positioned relative to Christianity. It's enormously important and it's enormously influential. It's not typical. And making that distinction between what is important and yet rare and unusual and what is typical and typifies the time is the subtlety that when we choose a particular moment of history or case study like Cosmos did, we often get wrong. So Cosmos is absolutely right when it says, here is an amazing pivotal moment, Bruno is important, and Bruno's trial has an enormous and chilling effect on what happens to 
science over the following century, but they're absolutely incorrect when they depict him as typifying what the Inquisition was doing. And especially when they roll into some of the elements of his life assumptions that they're clearly getting from Orwell. Uh, so, for example, there's a period in Bruno's life, which when you read a biography or his Wikipedia page, it, it calls the period of wandering. That's what, that's the term Bruno uses for it. And so that's the term historians use for it, the period of wandering. What Cosmos animates for that segment is Bruno sort of in rags, shivering by a campfire as a homeless man wandering from place to place with the caption that he had been kicked out of his monastery and never had a steady job again. What Bruno's period of wandering actually was, was wandering from royal court to royal court around Europe, being invited to a sequence of high paid positions as a courtier, doing science and writing treatises in honor of the prince there, and then one by one alienating those communities, making enemies, getting into quarrels, and moving on to the next community. It's a very different kind of wandering. Now the the homeless, jobless one ties into both our notions of blacklisting and McCarthyism and these ideas of being, you know, you'll never work again, which is the phrase that they borrow for that. It ties into our modern ideas about censorship. And it ties into the moment in 1984 where Winston Smith describes how after people are broken by the Ministry of Love, they're usually released and allowed to wander around for a couple of years before being rounded up and finally executed, which is how they're filling in Bruno's story with their imagination, just from the phrase period of wandering. And indeed, it makes Bruno match the way we imagine censorship operating based on 20th century ideas of how censorship operates. If instead we zoom in and realize, oh, interesting, even though this man is so heterodox, and in fact has already had run into the position, what wandering means is going to royal court after royal court and making enemies one by one and having to move on and being unable to stably stay anywhere and support his own work by himself because this is a moment when a scientist can't self-fund unless he's independently wealthy. He has to be a dependent. He has to be a servant. He has to find some prince he can please or duke or countess or whatever it is that he can please to do his science. It reveals a very different toxic problem with that period, that less than the Inquisition being the stranglehold. The stranglehold is the absence of crowdfunding, the absence of Kickstarter, the absence of independent funding for research. So research is constantly dependent on, and at the end, I will dedicate the book to the Duke and the Duke will give me the bag of gold, which will let me survive until the next book is done. And so there is a very direct dependence of scholarship on the wealthiest classes who therefore control what is studied and what is produced. Uh, so that's where the errors in the Cosmos TV series are less, you know, I don't feel like criticizing the Cosmos TV series. I think 99% of it is fantastic. But it's more when we look at history examples, we're very quick to say, oh, I recognize a thing that feels like a 20th century thing. They must work the same way. Ah, yes, period of wandering. That must be like blacklisting or like Orwell. And it's when you zoom in, and ask, wait, what's it really happening? That you see the real structures of that historical moment. And for example, the problems that having research be dependent on the whims of the ultra wealthy had, 
we're in a state where things like SpaceX are replicating that. And it's looking at history that shows us the both good and bad sides of that, right? A patron could protect a scientist from the Inquisition, but a patron could also turn over a scientist the Inquisition. In fact, what ends up uh, getting Bruno condemned is that his employer turns him in, denounces him. Uh, the moment at which the rich person he was dependent on kicks him out and hands him over to the authorities. It's not the engine of the state by itself. If we study that, we learn more about our present and its good elements as well as its bad elements than if we just look at a glimpse of the past and then assume the rest of it must work like the present. Wow. Okay, so... <laughs> Long answer. Let me see. Plurality. Plurality. Oh my God, plurality. plurality. My brain and my mouth are not connecting today. It's one of those... That Plurality. Okay, forget it. Okay, it's not happening. Say pluralness. <laughs> pluralness. Plurality. Okay, I'm getting closer, but that's besides the point. So, Ada, let us kind of move on here now and talk a little bit about the interplay between science fiction and social science. Last time when I interviewed you, you gave me perhaps the best uh, definition of science fiction that I have ever heard in my life uh, and it was a kind of a hybrid between Ursula K. Le Guin's uh, definition which I by the way went uh, afterwards and, re, uh, and read uh, her whole speech. Isn't it the brilliant? It's a, it's a brilliant speech um, yes and it's totally worth it but then you added your own uh, on top of that uh, by saying that science fiction allows us to uh, do the ethical battles today that we will all have to face tomorrow, which kind of really blew my mind totally. And so I'm hoping to see uh, our conversation continue a little bit further into that vein and mm -hmm. then using that as a magnifying glass or as a litmus test, put your own work through the prism of that definition and see what we come up with. So uh, let me start with a couple of quotes by you in an article that you published uh, discussing the interplay between science fiction and social science. And you say, quote, a book where social science, talking about your trilogy of four books called Terek Nota, of course, mm -hmm. uh, you say a book where social science questions reign supreme. And then you go on to say, my series aims at an extreme realism in one science, history, the mechanisms of history, history, uh, historical change over time. Okay, so let's unpack this first in principle and then mm -hmm. go specifically into your own work. First of all, tell us what are the mechanisms of history that you're talking about here and is history a science or a social science? Because if you ask someone like Lawrence Krauss, who is a physicist, he would immediately say that history and all the soft sciences are not really sciences, according to him, because you can't run experiments, etc., according to him. But they're soft sciences at best, if at all. So how do we address that opinion? I think history is the great 
grounded which to address that opinion because history is often on the cusp where people debate whether it's a social science or whether it's in the humanities. And in some colleges and universities, it's in humanities and in some it's in social sciences. So sometimes historians are grouped in with economists and political scientists and psych people. And in other places, it's with classics and literature. And it absolutely does deserve to be on that cusp because there are some inquiries into history that are absolutely using the tools of humanities uh, and are doing deep you know, reading and textual analysis of you know, let's look at uh, Shakespeare's depictions of relations between different social classes in his history plays and use that to get at what people in his time think about social class. And that's very much a history question that's being answered with humanities tools. But at the same time, you might have a history question about things like, you know, why was there such a boom of creativity in Renaissance Florence in the 1400s? that attempts to answer that by doing very particular analysis of wages and wage ratios and how many hours a week work, workmen are working there versus elsewhere and are using statistical analysis that are absolutely in the social science sphere. And both of these are definitely history. And many of the best histories are the ones that synthesize both kinds of uh, sources. So there's an amazing book that I always recommend uh, that is humongous phone book sized book uh, by Michael McCormick called The Origins of the European Economy. And he's interested in what sets the structures of the European economy as we move out of antiquity, out of the Roman Empire structure into what we can call a medieval structure. And it's great on that, but what's truly gorgeous about the book is you're reading and in one paragraph, he'll cite metallurgic analysis of coins that were found in a tomb, and then he'll quote a letter, and then he'll discuss statistical analysis of the DNA uh, of parasite eggs that were found in a fossilized privy, and then he'll quote a poem. And all four of them will be integral to him being able to come to the conclusion he comes to at the end of the paragraph about the significance of cabbage in uh, a particular place in time, which will then add to the, to the rest of it. And it really shows how history needs all those tools. It needs tools that are very much experimental science. Let's dig up this plague pit and pulp all of the teeth uh, of all of the bodies we can find and compare the DNA and figure out what's happening. And let's also look at this satirical play about the building of the palace next to the plague pit. And putting those together is what lets us glimpse the past. Uh, so it very deservedly is on the cusp between methods of scientific analysis and methods of literary analysis, and the best history uses both. Very cool. And then what are the things that you call the mechanisms of history? What do you mean by that? So things like the question of what makes change happen, uh, not just the change of we have this king and he died and we have a different king. Uh, but what makes the larger structures that shape what is going on change over time? So, for example, how, uh, how much centralization is there and how much capacity is there for wealth to be collected in the hands of a centralized state or ruler, which can then apply that wealth in a top-down way, whether it's in investing it in larger armies or whether it's investing it in roads or whether it's investing it in a shiny palace. Uh, the question of how does that centralization process occur? 
that's a mechanism of history. Another uh, one I look at a lot because I study information technologies. One of the things that, in my opinion, strongly determines how quickly societies change is how quickly information can move. And every time we see a new technology come in, which accelerates the speed at which information circulates through a society, we see first a big burst of change as a result of the new technology. But thereafter, we also just tend to see faster stages of change so that the rate of change will be a little bit faster continually in that new era because the new information technology has moved in. And it means that when something happens in one town, it very quickly affects other areas. Uh, the, the quick printing press example being if in 1494, 1490-ish, uh, Savonarola, who is this hellfire and brimstone reform preacher in Florence, who says the papacy is corrupt and all of these things that they're doing and, you know, bishops get appointed bishop of a place they've never set foot and they don't care. They're just milking us for money. And this needs to be purged and cleansed and changed. He has a lot of the same ideas Luther does. And he does have printing presses, but he doesn't have many printing presses. And he prints some of his sermons, but they circulate locally. And he manages to, in fact, become head of state of Florence for a while. There's so much enthusiasm about him. He, he leads a theocratic revolution. Wow. Uh, but the word doesn't travel farther than the region where he is. And then politics and interplay with the papacy allows that revolution to be crushed. And he's eventually burnt at the stake. That's 1484, 1498. So 1517, when Luther, making very similar denunciations about church corruption, makes them public in Wittenberg, the 95 Theses are in print in London 17 days after Luther made them public in Germany. Because by that point, he doesn't just have access to printing presses, but there's a distribution system. In between the 1490s and the 15-teens is when a network of couriers who professionally ride from town to town circulating news and grabbing a pamphlet and bringing it to the print shops in the next town, who then print that pamphlet and then someone else takes it to the next town, enables that information to move so much more quickly, which is why many, many different explosive changes happen in rapid succession after Luther, but only a much narrower range of changes happen after Savonarola because the news can't travel as quickly. Those kinds of things are mechanisms of history. And it's not that they determine what happens, but it determines in some sense how unstable it is, how quickly it moves and changes and how much interconnection there is, how much a dynamic change in one town is able to cause explosive changes in other towns or just be isolated in itself. Very cool. So it's, uh, it's kind of a combination between you have to be at the right place at the right, at the right time and have the right tools all of these coming together and if you lack one of these like the guy in florence right like so he didn't have the uh, all the tools at least don't not the distribution network perhaps right and imagine there... imagine ebooks when there were ebooks but there wasn't yet a kindle right ebooks existed for a long time but there was no distribution mechanism so they right. couldn't become an economy they couldn't become a commodity they just were there and people would you know, email them to each other, but yeah. it suddenly becomes a thing when there's a distribution mechanism. Yeah, fantastic point. Okay, so continuing in that vein of conversation, then Lawrence Krauss would say, well, okay, but here's the thing. We in physics have the thing called the laws of physics. Mm -hmm. Do you guys have a thing called the laws of history 
and if you do, how will that work? Uh, and of course, uh, we already know that there's at least two candidates here, one from science fiction and one from arguably history or maybe ecology or evolutionary biology. Uh, from science fiction, we had the work, the foundation series mm -hmm. of Isaac Asimov, yeah. who for I think maybe 40 or 50 years was writing that series from like the 1940s to maybe the 1980s or something like that. I mean, that. there's a big long gap there, right? There's the original Foundation trilogy and it's very solid and complete in itself. And then a long time later, there are more, which are really quite separate and not necessary for the, you know, the big work, which is the, uh, the first three. Sure. But over there, he was ex uh, basically exploring that idea, which he called uh, at the time, I think, psychohistory or something like that. Yeah, psychohistory. And then Peter Turchin actually um, got a lot of media attention in the last couple of months. And I even asked him for an interview, but unfortunately he said it's not his thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and he kindly declined the, the invitation. Uh, and I asked, I wanted him to come and talk to me about two things. First, his idea of cleodynamics, which is another way of saying the laws of history. And second, his supposed prediction that 2020 would turn out to be uh, an idea of, of, of civic strife and conflict uh, and, and stuff like that, which he <clears throat> supposedly predicted um, in a pamphlet or a letter or an article that I read recently that he published in 2010. Mm -hmm. uh, so whereabouts do you stand in? And then, of course, we have other historians uh, who say, and, and let me read this to be accurate from another article that I shared with you some time uh, ago called, if history was more like science, would it predict the future? The conclusion in that article from this uh, professor in history was, in some, it is not at all clear that creating a science of history is actually a good thing. But what's certainly dangerous is letting one particular perspective on what it means to study something scientifically takes central stage in debating the issue. So for, for that historian, that was a big issue because basically it, it kind of uh, makes a, a line in the sand of what is and what is not history. And his argument was that you would lose more than you would gain from doing that. Hmm. So that kind of sets the space, you know, that we are dealing with here. Whereabouts hmm. do you belong? Uh, so there are several separate sub-questions in your question. I'll try to do different chunks. Uh, in terms of questions of can we make laws or rules about history, I think that there are different types of laws or rules you can make. And one of them, which you can make in any kind of sense, is an if-then, right? If A, then B will occur. And that's the kind of thing that I think you can do in history to some degree, just as you can do it in other sciences. So, for example, just as you Logical can say, deduction. So just as you can say, you know, if birds are isolated on an island so they only interbreed with each other, they will come to have species drift and differ from the original species, which is somewhere else. And after observation a lot, you can come up with some characteristics of what tends to happen in such an isolated space. So similarly, you can say things like every time a new information technology comes in, there will be a consequent wave of uh, complexity in which 
because the new information technology isn't yet effectively regulated by the society, lots of people will make use of it who are voices that used to be stifled by the regulations of the old system. So you'll get a burst of heterodox voices, which will in turn trigger uh, anxiety and therefore a new wave of censorship and efforts to control that thing. Right. That A will always lead to B. Notice how this doesn't predict whether the censorship approach will succeed. It doesn't predict what kinds of voices will be empowered by the new thing. It doesn't specifically predict the speed with which this will happen. But it predicts that when A, then there will be B. So that is the kind of thing that it's that we can pretty conclusively come to with history situations. For example, we know from statistical analysis that societies that are uh, economically uh, stratified are the most explosive and revolution-prone societies. In other words, the, the biggest the gap from the rich to the poor, the higher the likelihood of some kind of a revolution or civil war or something. Is that not a good example? Uh, I think that's a great example of something slightly different, which is we're working on that, but we don't actually have as much data as we would like because there are so many parts of history where we don't yet have good numbers for what the wealth gap was. You know, here we get to the issue that uh, we, we know a lot less history than most people tend to think. You know, and, and once every several weeks, I'll have somebody email me asking, I read about this you know, interesting source that you mentioned in the blog post, where can I read it? And I'll say, well, it's not online, it's only in the archive in a place. And they'll say, oh, wow, I can't believe that a Renaissance manuscript isn't digitized yet. And I'll say, actually, there are tens of millions of Renaissance manuscripts that aren't digitized yet and that we haven't read. Uh, so, you know, when we come to conclusions about patterns, we're coming to conclusions about historical patterns from the spaces we've studied and the spaces for which we have the historical record, which are themselves quite narrow and specific. And in particular, we've studied more often the places that it was fashionable to study earlier, meaning the British Isles, <laughs> uh, bits of Europe, etc. We have less study of other areas. We have much more studies of modernity than we do earlier. And there's also a disproportionate survival of sources. Yeah. Uh, so even within a period that we've studied a lot, like the Italian Renaissance, when we have very, very fine-grained information about the wealth gap in Renaissance Florence, and I can tell you exactly, you know, in the early 1400s, the average day laborer worker made 35 florins a year, which is, if we set that at being approximately $30,000 a year as a vague way to, you know, correlate a salary, the richest man in the city, Paolo Strozzi, had a wealth equivalent to $175 million. Florence, so or dollars, not not Florence, $175 million versus $30,000 being the wealth gap, which notice is very small wealth gap compared to our wealth gap. Florence then went on to have 11 upheavals of government in the next century. Uh, and yet it's a much smaller wealth gap than our wealth gap, you know. But but if you ask me, okay, what about other towns in Italy at the time? I'll say, well, we don't know. And a lot of the time we don't know because there has been bias in the survival of the source base. So Renaissance Florence, we have all these records. Why? Because Florence survived World War I and World War II intact. Why? Because everyone loved Florence and gave the order, don't hurt Florence. And the Allies were under orders, do not bomb Florence no matter what. Uh, the only one bombing was permitted and they were ordered to go in to hit the train station only in daylight. It's very rare for daylight bombings to be ordered, right? But it was, we would rather risk the lives of our pilots 
than for a moment in danger of bombing the archive in Florence. Whereas the archive in Naples, you know, <laughs> nobody cared because there's all this negativity about Naples and its connections with Spain and it was a monarchy, not a republic. And so nobody ever had negative feelings about Naples, didn't protect Naples. So we have far fewer records from Naples and it's much harder to answer this question about Naples. And that's a microcosmic version of everything. We have so much more preserved historical record from the places that we valued and worked hard to preserve the historical records of uh, and of other places where people were happy to burn or destroy or leave to rot historical information. We have a lot more work to do to get that info. So it is absolutely the case that wealth gap does look like it's a volatile factor. We've been studying wealth gap a lot, uh, but on the other hand, we we only have the tip of the iceberg and the iceberg is way bigger than that. And we don't have wealth gap numbers for the rest of it. We could turn out to be wrong. We want to do more and more of that work. Uh, and if indeed, you know, you look at Renaissance Florence, which has had way more tumults than recent US and yet had a much, much smaller wealth gap, is that, what does that mean? <laughs> so, uh, uh Am I saying wealth gap is a meaningless statistic? No. Do I think this is likely an accurate thing to look at? Absolutely. But do we know it with certainty like it's a law? No. Uh, and, and so that's why I say these if-thens. We have a lot of if-thens. If new information technology, then period of anxiety where disempowered voices <clears throat> are empowered and everyone wants to worry about it. Just as a biologist can say, do you have a body of water with muck at the bottom? Nature will evolve you something shaped like a crab. All right. You know, and, and conversion evolution, we get crabs over and over, and that's a pattern. Do Can we predict the kookaburra? Can we predict other weird creatures? Can we predict the sloth? Probably not with that fine grainedness from our understanding of biology. We can sure predict there'll be a leaf-eating climbing thing, uh, that every ecological niche will be filled. We can predict there'll be something doing what squirrels do, but it won't be squirrel every time. Uh, and so similar, I think that's a very fair comparison to history of there are some patterns we know, but we also know that we're only looking at the tiny tip of an iceberg that two thirds of the iceberg is missing and the remaining third is not random survival. It's biased survival shaped by what has been intentionally preserved or not protected at different points. Okay, so we can have those if A, then B. Right. What else could fall within that broad sort of I don't know if I can call it category or let's say toolbox that we can call the laws of history. Right. And I mean, the answer is different historians are working on different ones and the ones that I know well come to mind most for me. Uh, but it's, it's funny. Uh, there's a thing I often chat with chemistry friends about, which I call the ratio of researchers to questions. Yeah. Uh, how many researchers in the field are there per big question in the field? How many people are working on X question? And if you're looking at something like uh, cell biology that's applicable to curing cancer, you're going to have maybe four different labs, each of them with a couple dozen you know, professors, postdocs, and grad students all working on that question. So you have a ratio of maybe 50 to 80 researchers to that question. Uh, and in other fields, you're going to have less density or more density. So if it's, if it's a cure for a way more obscure thing than cancer, you might have only one lab 
that's working on it. And you might have, therefore, a dozen or two dozen scientists or, or chemists who are working on that problem. Uh, in history, there's so much material and so few people working on it that, that rather than the chemist anxiety of, oh, no, what if the other team gets to the answer before me? It's much more, if you get an email from someone saying, hi, I'm working on vaguely the same place and vaguely the same century you are and asking a similar question, you're like, oh my God, there's another person. We can be friends and share information. <laughs> uh, uh, so that it's, it's more of a sense of, it's not you know, 10 researchers per question or 20 researchers per question. It's often you know, one researcher per 20 questions in terms of the active threads of history that we could be looking at. Uh, and if we had 10 times or even 100 times as many historians, we could start filling in vast swaths of information and come to a lot more questions about rules. And as it is, we're doing our best. Uh, but I think a lot of what we're doing is fixing the mistakes from earlier history uh, and trying to fill in fundamentals of just what was there, what was uh, extant before we can then compare things to each other. Uh, history is starved for people per question in a way that I think is an interesting contrast with a lot of STEM fields. And so when you ask something like, can you get enough data to then put it in and say, can we make a chart of wealth gap per revolution? Uh, or can we make a chart of you know, weapons technology versus number of deaths in war? Yeah, and because we want that chart. We really wanna know, you know when weapons technologies innovate, does that cause a spike in war deaths? Does it cause a steady line of war deaths? Does it cause a decrease in war deaths? Before we can make that chart, we have to decide how many people died in World War I, which we still debate and find new data for, let alone in the Wars of the Roses uh, or other wars far further back where our data is a lot rougher. Uh, so a lot of the times people say, can you predict X from Y? And the answer is maybe you could if we had Y. But we're, we're often many more steps from getting to why than people imagine, partly because of definitions, right? Do you count civilian starvation in war deaths or not? Do you count people who are exposed to mustard gas and then died of pneumonia 10 years after the war as that? But in terms of just actual raw numbers, if you limit it to soldiers who died in or near battlefields or from injuries who they got on the battlefield who died before the war ended, even if it's that number, in fact, we don't, we don't have it uh, a lot of the time, or we have estimates and then we suddenly realize our estimates are way off. Uh, and it's very common for somebody to publish a new article that says, this city that we thought the population was this, we were totally wrong by, by 20,000. It's, it's you know 80% of what it was or 120% of what we thought it was. So in principle, it, it seems to me you're not opposed to the idea of uh, laws of history, but you're saying that the problems we're facing right now are data or the ratio of historians versus the material that we have to kind of excavate, dig into in order to kind of get the raw data, which would provide, uh, you know, material for, for sort of like those algorithms or those so-called laws of history to be run and to produce anything. Okay, well, Maybe it's a little bit of a sidetrack here, but someone from the singularitarian AI slash transhumanist community would say, well, can't you fill that gap with AIs? Like instead of having, you know, professional historian PhD students 
can't we get like you know uh, Google to scan all those you know tens of millions of manuscripts around them around them through you know translators through you know machine learning algorithms etc etc and can't we just yeah and the answer there is eventually probably a chunk of them we can uh, but we're much farther from that than people tend to imagine so I was just emailing with a colleague who's been working on a program to train a neural network to scan Renaissance manuscripts, not to analyze the content, but even just to tell what the words are and make a, make a transcription of them. And they've been working really hard and they've worked just on Italian, Italian language, and just on Italian manuscripts and just in one particular century. And they've got, you know, they've spent an enormous amount of money on this and they've put thousands upon thousands of manuscripts in. And I said, I have a letter, it's from 30 years earlier than you're working, can you give it a try? She gave it a try and I think we got maybe 60% of the words. And that's just a couple decades difference. Right. So, you know, and that's the most sophisticated AI we've got now. Now they'll be so better in five just, years. Just out be of curiosity, what that. was the difference within those couple of decades? Is it the language? What's the difference? It's the, the, shape, the shape of the handwriting. The computer can't recognize an O, it doesn't look the same. Really? Just yeah, paleog- the Yep, just the handwriting. Paleography is the art of learning to read the scripts of a particular era, and it takes a whole year or more to train just in the handwriting of one time and place. Handwriting changed so much. Well, so for and 20 years, 30 years, you had variability that messes up the algorithms. Exactly. And the computer wow. can't do it. Now our computers wow. will get better, right? And and sure. I'm I'm totally open to the idea that the descendant of that computer in a couple of decades will be able to parse a wider variety of things. And then we will be able to scan all these manuscripts and turn them into texts. We then have to work toward the computer that can then analyze the texts. Because I don't know if you've ever looked at our computer efforts to parse Latin, right? But compared to our computer's successes at rendering comprehensible, I don't mean you know beautiful, but even comprehensible modern languages, uh, and as, not all modern languages, but comprehensible major languages like English, Italian, you know, EU languages for which they have millions of pages of sample stuff. Uh, they've got a, quite a bit of sample Latin, but because of the way the endings work, because of the subtleties of the verb structures, because of the patterns and the way the language changed over multi-millennia and usage and meaning changed a lot. Right now, you can look at Google, uh, Google translated text for something from modern Italian and, you know, you, you giggle a little bit at some of its mistakes and, and the fact that it just told you that Savonarola was sentenced to an orca whale instead of Savonarola was sentenced to be executed by burning at the stake. Uh, and you giggle and smile and move on and, and it's usable. Uh, but when it's Latin, it's just like nonsense. And again, in a few decades, will we get better And that? Yes, because, a few, because 10 years ago, we couldn't do this with those modern languages for which we have bigger sample sizes either. But it means we have, we have a, lot, a number of years to work even to get to the level that the computer can figure out what the words are on the page. And then we would start, can the computer then analyze the words on the page usefully to then tell us things? And we already have started doing that a bit. Uh, one of the first useful computer analysis of Renaissance text has been you take a bunch of transcribed uh, text that you know is one particular author, you then scan a bunch of anonymous texts, 
and you see that there are patterns and that this particular anonymous letter is this author. That is wonderful. We can do it. Uh, and so computers are a fantastic tool in that degree. But we have so many steps to go to even get to the level that we could give the computer all the manuscripts and ask it to come to a conclusion that we're not near knowing whether it can and how you know usable it is. I think in time they will come to lots of interesting conclusions, but we sure have a lot of work to do to get there. And when we get there, the computer's next challenge is, okay, you've read all of the manuscripts from Florence. Now guess what was in the ones in Naples that aren't there anymore, which is a different level of challenge. Can computers helpfully do this? Maybe, right? Because we have some of the stuff from Naples and we can fill that in and maybe it can sort of back work out what the missing structure of the house is from a couple of roof beams and give us some useful things to guess at, uh, that'll be exciting and we'll work toward that. Um, but with so much missing, whether that's ever going to be able to be a complete picture of things, you know, will the computers ever be able to tell us who, how many people died in the Peloponnesian War? Probably not. Uh, probably without a time traveling way to get data, right? Without a way to get data across time, which we might develop. You never know. Uh, but without the ability to get data that doesn't exist anymore, there are going to be questions about history that we always struggle to answer and therefore have to fill in with imagination, creativity, other patterns, etc. So, so, so that's kind of one hurdle and and one path that that uh, you know you kind of already have started exploring. But what about Peter Turchin, who says it's not a matter of data? You have these cycles, these whether you call them Kondratiev cycles or whether you call them you know whatever you want to call them. Every fifty to seventy years, according to him, you have these things that kind of repeat themselves. So even if you lack the data, if you watch the cycles, according mm -hmm. to him, uh, you can actually come up to certain conclusions. And, and that's kind of what Clio Dynamics does. Mm -hmm. And this is how supposedly in 2010, he predicted the social unrest that the United States is predicted, uh, right. the social unrest that the United States is facing today. So first of all, do you agree? I don't know how familiar you are with his work and with his original article. So, uh, but do you agree that he did predict that? And and if 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 yes, I don't know whether he did because I haven't looked at the stuff. In terms of whether there are cycles and patterns, I th I think cycle is a dangerous word because it gives the impression of the same exact thing happening. Uh, and I like the phrase historians sometimes use use history doesn't repeat but it does rhyme. Yeah which is to say that it won't be the same events, but there will be similar events, right? So there in, in medieval England, there would be peasant uprisings and each peasant uprising was unique and had unique factors, but they all had certain patterns in how far the peasant uprising went, uh, how it failed to then make systemic change and the ways that it fell apart. So that while each peasant uprising was unique and, and only certain ones did this or that, uh, there were also patterns. I think that saying it's every X years is dangerous because I think the rate of change of history increases over time. Uh, and so it's much more the peasant revolts are this far apart and then they're this far apart and then they're this far apart. A, a lot of it affected by how much wealth there is, which makes more movement, which makes more circulation and also how quick your information technologies are. 
so that we have much more rapid turnover in the print age than before, and we're having more rapid turnover in the digital age before. And if you want to think about questions of stability, always remember we are closer in time to Cleopatra than Cleopatra to the foundation of her monarchy. There was a very, very long period of stability, and it didn't have cycles of every 70 years there being a tumult because the structures that it had in place enabled it to be very stable, largely extremely predictable crop yield, and therefore a lot of stability in terms of demographics and, and wealth. But also other factors like there weren't major changes in information technology at any point in that phase to make there be an acceleration. Uh, whereas when you get developments of other technologies that accelerate the movement of information, then you get dynamism. And indeed, you got dynamism in the bits of Egypt when, you know, papyrus is being used for the first time or scripts are being used a little bit more than you do in the bits where scripts have been stable for a very long time. Though so you'd want a real Egyptologist for that one. Um, well, that, those are very uh, well put together reasons for which I am skeptical myself mm -hmm. as per whether we can even call what he wrote in 2010 because I did read it and it's barely you know a couple of pages if not like less uh, and it's kind of very vague and very broad but he actually speaks there about these cycles being somewhere 40 to 70 years which again doesn't fit with what you say and and also uh, I come from the sort of like the idea of accelerating change, which perfectly lines up with what you said there, that it makes sense that as information technology and exchange of ideas speed up and, you know, the economy speeds up and, you know, we have instant communication across the world, change would permeate the world, you know, at a different pace. And that's mm -hmm. why the pandemic that we're going through right now sped in a very different pace then it sped, you know, in the 1918 or in the 12 or 13 or 1400s. And so everything that you said are all good reasons for me to be skeptical of, of Cleodynamics, which is why I wanted to talk to him so much mm -hmm. and ask him those things directly. But he very kindly turned me down. So unfortunately, I can't, I can't do that. Well, I think there are, again, in the, it, it doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. I think there are very meaningful things you can observe that'll give you generals, but not specifics. And in, in a lot of this, what we're looking at is generals and not specifics. Just as a biologist can tell you nature will make a crab, but can't tell you will the crab be blue or will the crab be yellow or will the crab be really wide or will the crab be really thick? Uh, the crabs will vary, but they will be crabs. Uh, so similarly, I think there are things that recur. So if we're talking about the 40 to 70 year pattern, one of the things that's not quite stable over time, but nearly stable over time, is um, the, the time span until the grandparent and great-grandparent generation has all died and, the new, and isn't there to inform the new generation's experience. He speaks about that. And, you know, good to know. One thing that happens over and over in history is people invoking and reimagining the events that happened in the just lost generations era. And we right now are seeing a surge of interest, not specifically in World War II, but in reimagining World War II and in the themes of World War II. And since we have lost almost all of our World War II veterans who can talk about World War II, the new generation is suddenly liberated to 
claim X about World War II and not have grandpa call him up and say, what? <laughs> no, <laughs> that is not the, you know. Uh, so there is a phase at which every given moment of history gets liberated from being able to be corrected by the people who lived through it and passes into inherited memory instead of lived memory and is therefore able to be reimagined by that next generation. Now that does change a little bit over time with variations in both lifespan and how early or late in their lives people tend to have kids because the later in life the new generation is born, the earlier in their lives the the grandparent generation will be gone, right? Uh, So that isn't a constant either. It it varies socially and geographically and and over time. But it does mean that uh, a, a constant pattern indeed in history is each generation retelling the narratives of its past. And there are moments when a particular bit of the past becomes available to re-narrate with less correction because a sufficient quota of the people who remember it are gone. And therefore it becomes a a slightly more blank slate for the new generation to reimagine, retell, which is part of why you get nostalgic resurgences or claims of restoring X for that generation that whose history was just made claimable in this particular way sometimes. So that's a pattern that lets you predict, you know, uh, if this generation is making a bunch of new claims about World War II, the next generation will be making a bunch of new claims about the later stages of the Cold War. And it's structures and they will reimagine the Cold War in a new way, just as people are reimagining World War II right now. In what way will they do that? What will the resurgence be? Will there be a sudden communist burst? Will there be a sudden hippie burst? Will there be a sudden anti-technological burst? Will there be a sudden pro-technological burst? That's the, it rhymes, but we can't predict the specifics part. Uh, will there be some major reimagination of the Cold War appropriating it for the narratives of that political era? Yes. Which narrative? We don't know yet. Uh, yes. Uh, so let me ask you this then. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a cut, probably the last question before we jump into your trilogy of four books that I can now say officially I've read the first three which probably add up to a couple thousand pages. Uh, and I think based on what you're, you've been telling me about the last book, that one would be probably 800 plus. Uh, probably, yeah. It's double the length of the first one. Yeah, so... <laughs> but everyone who's read it agrees we need every page. It's really tight. I agree that, that we needed every page so far uh, in the first three books also. Uh, but But... The last question before we jump into the book is uh, is actually a repeated question from the first interview. And I just want to see if you want to change your answer just out of curiosity and given the events of the last month. Mm. Because last time we had a conversation with you was probably about a month or longer than now. And there's been a lot of stuff happening. And in our first interview, I asked you if you have any concerns that the United States may be entering into a period or close to a civil war situation and you told me no and yet since then we've seen a lot of conflict a lot of buildings burning people being shot with 
actual bullets or you know gas canisters or stun grenades or rubber bullets or beaten including journalists by the way who identify themselves on, on kind of like a mass scale mm -hmm. we're talking yeah. hundreds upon hundreds of people right and and they there have been sort of experts on both the, the left and the right who have expressed concern about that uh, and quite honestly you know uh from abroad, from a place like Canada, which is very close to the United States culturally, uh, economically, politically, linguistically, and historically in so many ways, mm -hmm. it certainly looks like uh, it's not impossible that that you guys are going that way, and that's that's a that's a a source of great concern here in Canada. So, should we be concerned about that? And do you want to reconsider your answer you gave us last time? Uh, I mean, I give the same answer now, dependent on how I define civil war as opposed to other kinds of civil tumults, right? Because the, a question that can make people give different answers to this is how you define civil war. Uh, and I'm defining civil war quite strictly as there are armies raised that are formal military armies with commanders that march on things, fight battles against other armies, hold territories and force borders. That's a civil war as opposed to many other kinds of civil upheaval. But isn't, when you're talking about armies, in my views, you're talking already about war, not civil war. Civil war to me personally is something that doesn't have right. armies. So it, we're defining it differently, but like right. then that yeah, excludes clearly. the American civil war which had armies. Right, yeah, yeah, I, and, and I would stick by my claim, but I see right. you're 100% correct, but I would right. say that under my definition, that's definitely not going, I mean, it wasn't even the same kind of country. It was like the different states and each had their own army and then the south and the north. But yeah, but we're going sidetracked here, so. So, well, okay, no, yeah. the, the point is, there's, there's not a strict line between what is and isn't a civil war. There's a kind of a blur and any given person who speaks the sentence X is or isn't a civil war is, is operating on a particular definition, just sure. as uh, as you can have a particular definition of what is totalitarianism or not, or, or you know, sure. where sure. what is the metric you use to judge when this is or isn't. Right. Uh, and and certainly as a historian who looks at somewhere like you know Renaissance Florence, where you'll have multiple different types of civil upheaval and even government change with many deaths involved, some of which are definitely a civil war because there were armies opposing other armies, both coming from the same country and trying to establish one particular government for that country. And other times you'll have what you could call uh, a peasant uprising or a revolt on the part of one particular you know, workforce or, you know, certain cities fighting other cities. Uh, there are a lot of complicated things that can happen that are a tumult and an uprising and a dynamic change in a country that are in a gray space in terms of how strictly you define civil war. I stand, however, by saying that this, this country was designed with a whole lot of institutions to enable a wide variety of different ways to settle disputes without war, war, without large-scale army-level violence. And as the last months have operated, we've watched a whole bunch of those fail and a whole bunch of them succeed. 
And things like there's great unrest in Minneapolis, there's a demand for the dissolution of the police in Minneapolis, the police in Minneapolis are dissolved by one of the structures that was put in place, that is individual, local control over particular things. You know, and if you look at something like the Supreme Court, right, which had two major questions today, one about immunity of police to being sued, the other about GLBT stuff, when we saw it do different things. And one of those is absolutely going to result in GLBT people feeling that they have to resort to to extra legal means less to secure those rights because those rights have been secured in a peaceful way. And those uh, tensions will therefore take a different form and the other one will not and will lead to tensions continuing to take the form that they have. So, you know, just there are hundreds of mechanisms and have a bunch of them gotten clogged? Yes. Have a bunch of them continue working? No. I think more mechanisms have to fail than are currently failing for things to move into a civil war space. Now, I think it's also true that there's an effort, a coordinated effort on the part of a particular slice of the far right to try to make those mechanisms fail, right? To try to stop those mechanisms from operating the way that they do and from allowing steam to be vented. Uh, And the more of those mechanisms that get blocked up, the more of the very plural decision-making processes of the country that get hijacked and turned into monopole decision-making processes, the more it will be impossible to use those peaceful resolution means. And if enough of them get blocked up, then that will result in there being no solution but a violent solution. But we're still in a space where, because there were several hundred of them, even if a hundred of them have already been systematically blocked up, there are still a couple hundred more that aren't blocked up yet and that we keep unblocking, right? Whenever there's a voter rights rights victory. Uh, I'm on the mailing list for the ACLU. And one of the neat things about that mailing list is you always get a list of here are this week's victories, here are this week's failures. Here is where we unblocked problems. Here is where problems have been blocked. Here are the ones that we're ongoingly fighting. Uh, and so just as, you know, lungs are a good comparison for this. Lungs have many, many, many thousands of little tubes. And when you have pneumonia, a bunch of those little tubes are being blocked, blocked by mucus. And your body is trying to unblock those little tubes and meanwhile relying on you to breathe using the ones that are not blocked. We're in the situation in the midst of that pneumonia where some of them are blocked and some of them are unblocked and some of them we've just unblocked and some of them are being blocked. And if the tide turns toward the immune system unblocking them, then we'll be okay. If the tide doesn't turn toward the immune system blocking them, then that lung will fail and a more radical thing is going to have to happen to the body. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I think it's a very good metaphor and what you say makes sense. But I still think that there may be the weakest point argument here to be made that if you find a single point of vulnerability, uh, you can potentially crush the whole system or force the system into overdrive mode. So, for example, the United States president, forget the police. Uh, That's not what I meant by by army and violence. Mm -hmm. First, the police already look now like military to me. Mm -hmm. Like how many Mm -hmm. of them have, you know... Uh, I mean, there was this whole recent case in the last two or three days where the school police in California had to return grenade launchers, but they decided to keep their uh, armored personnel carriers. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. like uh, and 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 M16 uh, rifles were called uh, life-saving uh, irreplaceable devices or something of mm-hmm. that of that of that sort. Yeah. So the only thing they returned from the military weapons they got access to uh, was the grenade launchers basically mm-hmm. so but putting that whole issue aside because that's still the police we're talking about right my concern is for a, a, a single point of collapse or vulnerability could be a president calling in the army as he said he would do by the way as yeah, we know several times but he's also said he won't because his statements call constantly contradict each other and you can't but he's so impulsive that i'm yeah. honestly concerned that it depends it's still not on whether a single he slept point of failure. on the left or the right side of the bed and it's, then it's still not a single point of failure though because armies are set up with lots of checks and balances inside them and very strict training and rules on when to disobey an illegal order those have to also fail you sure, know, is, is the president that, is the president a, a major is the president you know, a, a major bronchial tube yes uh, but that doesn't mean it's actually the single point of failure and one of the things we've been seeing is a lot of the points of failure adjacent to it also failing, right? Purging people of conscience and putting in people who are a yes man who are able to make that. But it's it was designed not with a single point of failure, with there being 50 points that have to all fail, but the regime has been trying to systematically shut down those 50 points. So, so okay, so we have those po- points of vulnerability and, and we have those sort of uh, mechanisms to to sort of protect the system by creating multiple fo- points of failure uh, or, or we have those checks and balances in a way, if you will. Okay, but there's also this delay effect. So for example, when President uh, Trump gave the order to go towards that church, the chief of staff, uh, uh, the military chief of staff, the general who is in charge basically mm-hmm. of all US military forces, went along with him right and was basically side by side walking with the president uh in sort of a mm-hmm. camo full camo geared up uh probably with, with a sidearm yeah which to, is towards the church and then two days later he came up on the record and said that he shouldn't have been there and he shouldn't have done that right, right. so yes the good news is that there are those checks and balances and the military can change its mind and can or should be impartial. Unfortunately, it looks like there's a delay effect of several days. And sometimes, some- there is, sometimes there is a delay, sometimes there isn't a delay. But what's also been happening is that the people who stood on conscience and refused to do the thing already did that and then got removed and replaced by people who are more compliant, right? Which is the systematically dismantling the multiple points of decision to try to reduce it to one point of decision. And that has been a systematic effort on the part of this regime. And one of the things we're going to watch in the fall is they're going to race to do that as much as possible as, as November comes, they're going to be racing to try to have there be as much centralized control as possible. And in November, then we'll see what kind of crisis that does or doesn't create. And so the, you know, the case of pneumonia is in this very extreme battle where the ACLU is unclogging things as fast as it can. Other types of efforts, whether it's Democrats in Congress or whether it's people down on the lowest levels of government making good decisions for neighborhood uh, 
uh, watch policies and so on are are doing everything and we're going to watch what happens and there absolutely is going to be crisis. Yeah, I'm in the middle right now of writing a guide for my university's instructors on ways to make our syllabuses be less stressful for students in November, moving deadlines around and so on with the expectation that there's going to be a couple of weeks in there when no one on no one in America can concentrate at full level on anything. And a syllabus should reflect that. It's not just a question of whether we're teaching by Zoom or not. It's a question of we're going to be teaching with everyone at breaking point, students and faculty alike. And how, what kind of adjustments you can make for that. Things like having a whole bunch of equally weighted tests instead of a big final on one day. Because if something giant goes wrong the day before that, so everyone is stressed, that can ruin that, but it can't do it as badly when it's spread out. You know, so so issues like that. Uh, we're going to see a major crisis at that point. And I think an important note for me to give is, I was talking about how there are civil wars and there are other kinds of tumults. The U.S. has a lot of structures in place to try to prevent not just civil war, but violent kinds of tumults. But nonetheless, uh, there are plenty of types of tumults which are not civil war, but are incredibly deadly. And you can look at history and find moments when there are conflicts that are deadlier than a formal civil war without being civil war. Civil war isn't necessarily the deadliest form of tumult for a society to undergo. Uh, but one of the efforts of the design of modern systems has been to try to make there be as many as possible less violent or less destructive ways to vent uh, tension and create change as possible. And we're seeing when those do and don't succeed. Uh, so whether there's a civil war or not is a separate question from whether there's a big crisis or not. Right. And that's an important detail. Okay. And so moving from the current tumultuous sort of situation, both domestically in the U.S. and globally on our planet in general, and going into sort of more of the long-term thinking, long-term planning, long-term analysis, and returning to our initial start about the interplay between science fiction and social science, such as history. Mm -hmm. Let us, uh, and by the way, I'm totally hoping that you're completely correct about, uh, and I know, of course, because my, my expertise was uh, political science back in the day, that the system in the United States is supposed to be designed to not be fragile and is designed to be able to withstand right. many uh parts of it collapsing or non-functioning properly or getting clogged up as you're giving your metaphor with the lungs and yet still not giving us, you know, a, a cardiac arrest or, or mm -hmm. a total system collapse. So I, I hope you're totally uh, correct on that. But let's move to the longer term uh, conversation here and to your uh, trilogy of four books called the Terra Ignota series. So first of all, what is Terra Ignota all about? Uh, the, the phrase or the books? Both. Uh, Whatever so the, you think you want to start with. So the phrase meaning unknown land, uh, equivalent to Terra Incognita or Here There Be Dragons, is what you write at the edge of a map when nobody knows what's there, right, in older European maps. So an unknown land which means when you then jump into the series and it's real world earth and we're in Brussels and other familiar places, it's a little bit 
perplexing for a moment of, wait, this isn't a science fictional other world. This is the world we know. But it's not the world we know. It's the future of the world we know. And a lot of what the series is about is that alienness is found more easily in time uh, than it is even in imagination, which is to say it's always been my opinion that if you watch Star Trek, uh, there's no alien that they ever made up that is as alien to our mindsets as somebody from 500 years ago. Uh, because we have a sense of how human psychology works and we turn out to have a limited sense of how human psychology works because we're really thinking of how in our experience people work and they work very differently in different times and places. So I set out to create a 25th century which would feel as alien to us in the 21st century as I think our 21st century would feel to Voltaire in the 18th. Uh, and to make us feel alienated in cultural practice alienated in vocabulary and being surrounded by things that we don't know what they are and alienated in the surrealness of some things being strangely the same and other things being radically different. Uh, some things having lasted a really long time. Uh, one pattern in a lot of science fiction is the past being swept away and us having a kind of a clean slate future that started from the present and moved forward in which antiquarian and old institutions are kind of gone. You can think of the you know, city of the future at a world's fair kind of thing. And everything is new and futuristic. Uh, if you look through the cities where George Jetson is commuting, he's not commuting past the 300-year-old church that was there before the, the uh, sky lanes and skyscrapers were put in. Uh, I think this is a, a particularly American and to some extent Canadian, you know, North American idea because this is one of the parts of the world where you have a lot of young cities which don't have things in them that are old, where the city was built either on wild or on destroying all earlier human habitation and just building that city. You know, so when I lived in College Station, Texas for a while, the historic old town was stuff from the 1960s. And there was one building from the 1920s. Oh, it was so old. They were restoring <laughs> it. It was very exciting. Uh, and... And our futures tend to be like city of tomorrow things without the hangover of stuff that lasts. Uh, and yet, when you look at the world around us, it's full of institutions that are very old, that have been repurposed over time, right? A lot of this is about repurposing over time. Uh, and so I wanted to look at what present institutions or even old institutions are gonna continue to be repurposed over time. So one of the things you learn from literally page one is that there's still a king of Spain. And you know, in the 25th century, surely that is an old fashioned, we have moved past that to the era of, of, of democracy and even past the era of democracy, the answer being yes, but there's still a king of Spain and he's sort of a celebrity figure who has you know, influence and people listen to him and he's the descendant of the current king of Spain. Does he have the same political function he has in 2020? No, but the king of Spain in 2020 doesn't have the same political function he did in 1920. He just abdicated, actually, I think, the real king of Spain. Yeah, yeah. Because there's a whole investigation into yes, him. And and I think he's an he... elephant and a bunch of stuff. Yeah, but there have been other kings of Spain who have been, you know, there was the king of Spain during World War II who was instrumental in arranging for Spain not to go in with the Nazis and become fully fascist. Uh, and, and sort of in a weird way from the right, uh, prevented uh, the full takeover of Spain by fascism at that period. And there have been kings of Spain that have had terrible effects and kings of Spain that have had you know, mitigating effects. Uh, and what the king of Spain means 
in 1500 is different from what it means in 1700. Uh, institutions tend to get reused over time, especially old institutions that have accumulated a kind of inertia. My favorite example for this is the Roman Senate, right? So ancient Rome, when it's a little tiny town, you know, that's just a republic in one little place, has a Roman Senate, and it's the leading families, and they're the government of this town. Uh, and then they conquer stuff in an empire, and now they're ruling an empire. And then they switch over to having a monarchy and we have Augustus Caesar and there's still a Senate, but the Senate is now partly a legitimating body whose job it is to approve the things Caesar does and partly a sort of political training ground for a bureaucratic elite that then works for Caesar and so on. And then we move on to bad Caesars, <laughs> you know, under Tiberius or under Nero, where the Senate becomes a body of resistance and a collection of places where people can speak out against the tyrant, where the tyrant can crack down, where you can watch what the tyrant is doing. And the people who end up organizing for the assassination of Caligula, for example, are drawn from that body. Uh, later, when the empire falls, <laughs> There's still a Roman Senate. There are no, you know, the Visigoths and other Goths and, you know, different conquerors are here. And now we have a Gothic kingdom, uh, but we still need to run the city of Rome. And we still have the senators who know how to do so. They become the bureaucracy under the kings. And they then move on to be the institution of the, the evil administrators of Rome. And so it's, it's still the Roman Senate, but it has a different function. It continues to be the Roman Senate up until the 1200s, I think it is when it finally disappears as an institution. But even then it doesn't go away because the people who claim to be the descendants of the Roman Senate become the leading patrician families and barons of the city of Rome who are leading resistance against bad popes and leading armies and being major factions in uh, the, the papacy and so on. So, you know, today the Arsini and Colonna still have titles in Rome because of being claimants to be descended from members of the Roman Senate going all the way back. But what do they do now? They're mostly in celebrity magazines and uh, administer stuff within the Vatican and also like run museums and, and do infrastructural stuff in the city. It's still the same institution. It's just been reused for a bunch of different things and its power will go up and down and it'll sometimes be just a symbolic power. Then it'll become a real power again. History tends to reuse its institutions. Uh, and so Terra Ignota has reused institutions all over the place. It has a giant network of flying cars and it has an entirely new polis and city of system of government that's been invented since our time, but it also does still have the European Union, which is still there doing things totally different from what the European Union is doing in 2020, which are in turn different from what the European Union was doing in 1970. So, so you do that job very well of actually showing how many, if not most, if not all institutions almost never die, but actually get rehashed and reused in a different, they're like Phoenix. They they kind of rise out of the ashes and just mm -hmm. take a different shape and serve maybe even a different function altogether, but they're still kind of there. And there's a genealogy and that's very interesting and important. Maybe we'll discuss a little bit later, but tell us a little more about the setting the the sort of main character and if there is mm. uh, or main characters or 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 protagonists and if there is an overarching theme or thesis that cuts across or if you want to keep that as a secret perhaps 
So I'm happy to talk about the world setup and some of the characters to start with. We can talk about Thebes as we go. Sure. Um, there is a network of flying cars, very classic science fictional as science fiction yet, flying cars, uh, which are so fast that you can get from anywhere on Earth to anywhere else on Earth in about two hours. Uh, as soon as that's true, Earth collapses into being within commuting distance. So now you can live in the Bahamas and work in Paris and have a lunch meeting in Tokyo and your spouse can also live with you in the Bahamas but work in Antarctica and have a meeting in Buenos Aires and another meeting in Russia and this is no problem. Uh, these are all within reasonable commuting distance with these self-driving self -driving flying robot cars. Um, once that happens, and that happened several centuries before the point where we are, people are going to live wherever there was a good house available for sale at the time that they bought a house, right? Uh, and they want, might want to live near friends and all live in the same place. But people start living and working all over the world. So geography stop makes, stops making sense to people as the organizational structure of government. Why should it be that your citizenship is determined by where you happen to be born? Uh, why, as opposed to the identity of your parents and the language you grew up speaking and the people on earth that you consider yourself to be part of? So this develops into a system of non-geographic nations, everybody living almost like expats. So as, when you come of age, you decide which government you think you want to be a member of, which one reflects your values and has the laws you want to be governed by. You sign up to be a citizen of that government. You pay taxes to that state, also to the local town or city. Uh, and you are governed by the laws of that state. Your next door neighbor or even your spouse might have picked a different one and live under a different government and pay taxes to that. And so for one of you, marijuana might be legal and for the other, it might be illegal, for example. Uh, and one of you might pay a very high income tax and the other a very low income tax because of the different social structures that the two different systems have decided on, but you choose. And everyone on the street might be from a different, under a different law. Uh, and, you know, this is administered the same way that expats are administered now or that throughout the Middle Ages there was church law and Roman law and local secular law and all these overlapping pallets of law. People negotiated. It was fine. It was no more complicated than legal systems we have now so long as you develop systems to do it. But it creates a buyer's market for citizenship where countries compete to attract citizens. And you don't only choose your citizenship once. You can change it. Uh, you can change it immediately. So, you know, there's a, uh, a, a person in office in your government who does some things that take it in a direction you really hate. You can renounce your citizenship and join a different country. And the countries really want citizens because citizens are tax money and tax money is power and the ability to do things. So they work very hard. It's a way that makes the government be answerable to its people. It has to be popular with its people or its people will leave. So it creates a very different relationship between citizen and government in which citizenship isn't something you're stuck with. Citizenship is something you choose and dynamically continue to choose over life. Now, this is not intended to be a perfect system. It's, a, it's intended to be a, a system that could evolve out of a future in which what we're already seeing today in the European Union becomes more extreme, right? In the European Union, people can mix and go everywhere and you'll have a couple I experienced this a lot when I was in Florence, 
doing research and I was at an academic institute and there were lots of families there who are researchers and the mother is from England and the father is from Spain and the kids were born while they were on a research trip to Germany and now the kids are in Italy going to Italian language school and speaking Italian and those kids get to choose the citizenships based on those options and I would listen to the parents sitting at the lunch table debating you know our kid has an option of four different citizenships which one or one's are going to be useful. Well, this one gives these privileges and this one gives these privileges. This one, you can't have dual citizenship. You're only allowed to have one. So they'd have to give up the other ones. And my thought was, well, what if that trend continued and citizenship became something that is actively chosen by everyone? Uh, What are the good things that that'll develop? And then what are the bad things that that'll develop? And so we get to see the tensions and competitions between this and the way it means that when there is major tension between two of these, those tensions are manifest on every street uh, and within every household rather than being buffered by geographic distance. But on the other hand, they're not magnified by geographic distance either. Very interesting. So uh, can you perhaps tell us a little bit more about the social and political structure uh, of, of, of this kind of a setup. And, and the social unit is the bar, what you call the bash. Oh, yeah. And then the, the political structure are the hives. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you describe how those works, uh, how those work and whether they add up to a dystopia or a utopia? Uh, uh, to the last question first, neither. Um, but it's neat to see how much people try to categorize it as one or the other, and that's intentional in the craftsmanship. So the social unit has changed to be the Bosch um, rather than the nuclear family or another family unit. One of the things I say that makes me as a historian think differently about a lot of world-building questions for most people is that a lot of people start from the present and ask, okay, what could change when building a science fiction world? What could be different from the default that is now? But I don't think of now as the default. Now is one of many, many ways the world has been. So I looked around and said, what is, what is unstable right now? What has been changing over the last century and will clearly keep changing? And one of the answers there is the family unit. Because the, the nuclear isolated family of just parents and kids is a very 20th century development. It was only ever dominant in a few places And it has a lot of internal problems. It was first developed with the assumption that they would be a hired maid, which is now less often true. Uh, it results in a lot of social isolation, especially if both of the parents are working, then there's no other person to take care of the kids unless there's an external thing. And we're already watching a lot of movement farther from that. Uh, adults choosing to continue to cohabitate later in life, pe- groups of people with multiple couples raising children collectively, other kinds of solutions, also uh, areas where the extended family as the social unit is re-emerging, in addition to large swaths of the earth where the extended family never ceased to be the dominant social unit. So I speculated that especially if you can live anywhere you want, a new social unit might develop, which is friends who became friends at, you know, 2015 college-ish age, Right. And we're friends and live together in dorms, wanting to continue to live together and share a large house together and raise kids together so that you have multiple adults so that even if all of them work, they can take shifts with kids and the kids always have other kids to play with. So the Bosch is a group of usually between four and 12 adults raising some number of kids together in a house. 
and they'll live in one place and buy a nice large house, which they share. This is also more eco-effective because it means you have one kitchen for a larger number of people instead of every small family needing to have a kitchen and so on. Uh, and, and Bosch is the unit now. And so many, most people grow up with a number of Bosch mates who are semi-siblings and become friends. And then as you become an adult, you uh, form your own Bosch unit and live in it. To me personally, the Bash sounds sound like like a hybrid between a family, a household, and a fraternity. It's like it's like a mixture. It has features of them all, but it's mm -hmm. neither. It's it's all of them, but more kind of deal. Right. Uh, and what about the hive then? What right. is so the, the hive? hives? The hives are these large, uh, non-geographic mega nations. One of them is the European Union to get a sense of what it means. So there are smaller units within it. Uh, but it is a large non-geographic territory. People can, uh, or uh, polity, people can choose to be part of it. And then there are a bunch of other ones. Uh, there are seven. One is an empire, the, the Masons right. Empire. Yeah, the Masons are an absolute monarchy. So people who like the sense of authority and strength and strong leader kind of things are drawn to the Masonic Empire. And it uses the propaganda of invoking great, powers of the past. It's called the Masons because of the myth of Masons secretly controlling history from underneath. And it uses Latin and it uses imposing columns and ziggurats and all of the sort of accoutrement of empire. And it's an absolute monarchy. Caesar just speaks, you know, the word, the law out of his mouth. But on the other hand, if you think he's being a tyrant, you can leave and not be under his power within, within seconds. So Uh, there's a limit to what how tyrannical an absolute monarch can be if his citizens can be free in an instant. Uh, there's another one, which is the, um, the humanists who evolved out of, all of these evolved out of different things. The humanists evolved out of a transit network that had been set up almost like global entry, designing in the early days of the flying cars to make it easier for people who travel a lot to travel across national borders easily. And this one was designed for sports fans. It was originally the Olympics and other sports ones so that you could be a member of it. And then you could more quickly and easily pass through borders when you wanted to go watch a game, uh, whether it's uh, football or whether it's uh, tennis or whatever it is, or whether it's the Olympics themselves in another country. Uh, over time, that evolved into having so many members and being so cohesive that it became one of these. And it focuses on the idea of cultivating personal excellence, whether it's in sports or in music or in art or in baking incredibly brilliant bread, uh, that you push yourself to, to maximize that art. And, uh, and so it appeals to people who are, are very interested in sort of uh, the maxima of what a human being in an individual sense can achieve. Uh, there's another group called the Cousins, which evolved out of a sort of a mutual aid uh, charity. It was originally a group a little bit like couch surfing uh, that, you know, the idea was you sign up for it. And if, if you're visiting a strange city where you don't know anyone, a fellow member of the Cousins will meet you. And as if it was a distant cousin that you had never met before, but nonetheless had a connection with, they'll host you in their living room and show you around and help you out. Uh, and that came to be focused on showing around and helping out and eventually becomes the nation that focuses on good works and charity. They run most of the schools and most of the hospitals and most of the education and vaccination programs and, and have some of the laws that are in some senses the most restrictive mandating 
health stuff mandating this and that because it's designed to maximize the well-being of society. Um, there's another one, the Mitsubishi, which evolved out of the Mitsubishi Mega Corporation and uh, uh, has a lot of East Asian cultural elements in it and becomes a sort of cultural rival slash peer to the European Union, the two of those being the ones that are the most focused on traditional geographic and cultural units. Uh, the European Union in this future, of course, not only being European countries, we hear mentioned from time to time that the European Union includes Canada and the Philippines and different places all over the place. Uh, just any group that feels like it wants to be represented by the Union of Nations that is the uh, European Union. Tell us a little more about who the Brillists are and what is a set set. Sure. So uh, one of, uh, very briefly on the Brillist, before the Brillist, one of the hives is Utopia, which is the hive focused on space exploration uh, and, and sort of technological advancement. Their two twin quests are to step-by-step -step disarm death and reach the stars. Uh, and they focus all of their activities on advancing this uh, twin program of research. And they're terraforming uh, Mars as the and whole plot yes, is unfolding. They're halfway through to a 500-year terraforming Mars project, very slowly, very patiently, step-by-step. They're doing it. The Brillists are, uh, were the first hive and originally the person who sort of came up with the hive system uh, was the original head of them. And at that point, they were the sort of generic default hive whose idea it was to break from geography and, and do this. But over time, he became interested in, and then the whole hive became interested in, Brillism, which is, or, uh, which is a psychological system pioneered by a 22nd century psychologist called Brill, uh, which does very finicky evaluation of people's minds based on a bunch of metrics that are in the books intentionally difficult to understand that use those to then predict human psychology and human behavior. They focus on the idea that uh, no particular set, right? A set being the set of numbers of how you score on all the different metrics. So three, seven, eight, two, 10, 15, et cetera, might be your scores in the different metrics. That no particular set is superior to any other set. It's actually the dynamic conjunctions of different combinations of sets that's rare and interesting. And so in, in any given Bosch, a Bosch that combines this particular set of 10 different sets uh, is where the dynamic dynamism of humanity comes from in their view. And they're very interested in observing human society, but also in analyzing and increasing the dynamism and rarity of it. Um, a set set then is not something they do. It's something they strongly disapprove of. But you can use the arts that were developed by these psychologists to then raise a baby very carefully to try to make it be a particular set but especially to try to make it be a particular set that is optimized for some particular skill. So we encounter some people who have been raised to be sort of a living human computer interface to deal with big data and big data visualization, uh, who spend their lives totally covered with sensors using every possible input you can on the surface of your skin and sound and taste to uh, watch these elaborately complicated big data uh, presentations in order to use them to regulate, in fact, the system that makes the cars go. Uh, and this is very controversial because some people say you're, you know, this is tyrannical and abusive. You're forcing the person to live this very strange life where they 
don't relate with people in a normal way and you sort of locked them into one path in the world, other people say, but, you know, I, I, that sense, I always say they're very happy that they really like having these rare abilities that have been uh, taught to them from birth and that they are glad that this is the unusual state that they're in. And so one of the political controversies of this world are people who oppose versus people who defend this practice. And one of the reasons I have that is I feel strongly that, uh, you know, we, we're advancing through various civil rights questions and we're getting better on particular ones. But as we move forward, we then advance to new civil rights questions. And the, I don't think we're going to get to a state where there aren't any civil rights questions anymore. It's a question of we've settled the earlier ones, right? Women have the vote. We're not fighting about whether women have the vote anymore. We're now fighting about other things like rights for transgender people. And, and it's not that the, right, the fight for equal rights for women is over. It absolutely isn't. There's a whole lot of that's still going on, but it's advanced a bunch and it's made progress and other ones are coming in. And if you jump forward several centuries, you're not going to jump to a point where there's no civil rights fight. You're just going to jump to a part where a bunch of these civil rights battles have been won. Others have been partly won or maybe lingering uh, and new ones have come up. So this is a world that's worried about the, the question of civil rights about set sets. And they're also... It's very, very minor thing that's only in the very background, but they're worried about civil rights for the octopus. Uh, so at this point in time, they've given minor status, which is a status uh, where you get the same protections that a human child does to cetaceans, high primates, and a few other high elephants, and a few other high intelligence animals. And they're now debating the octopus because <laughs> the octopus is very high intelligence. Uh, the, the legal criteria they happen to have used for the other civil rights battles were, um, uh, uh, does it pass on culture and does it mourn its dead? Those were the criteria for, is this an animal that needs to be as protected as humans are, that they had used. And elephants, cetaceans, and high primates all teach pass on culture to their young and all mourn their dead. Well, octopus don't do those things. They're largely auto-intolerant and live in isolation. Some of them live near each other, but we haven't experienced them teaching each other. We certainly haven't experienced them doing anything except eat their dead or ignore their dead. Uh, so it's a space where the legal rights argument can still be happening in the background of all the other things that are happening. Because, and going back to the dystopia utopia question, dystopias and utopias are characterized by being static. They've reached a state and they're in that state and that state is a perfect state or that state is a terrible state, uh, but they've reached a state where they're, they're unchanging. And this is absolutely not an unchanging world. It's a world full of political proposals and political uh, tensions and processes underway. It's a peaceful world. It's been at peace for a long time, but it's changing. People very much want to categorize it into utopia or dystopia because it has a lot of features we associate with, in fact, each. Uh, you know, flying cars, unprecedented personal liberty, 20-hour uh, work week, 150-year uh, lifespan, these all feel utopian, uh, uh, constant surveillance, uh, severe religious restrictions, severe censorship, these all feel dystopian. The answer is it's neither. It's a dynamic world like our world that mixes elements that feel utopian and dystopian, just like our world also does. 
Now, we already touched last time that it feels like a little bit of sort of like a like a historical chronicle that we are reading mm -hmm. uh, and a detective story uh, yes. at the same there's a, time. There's a, there's a whodunit that sort of surfaces occasionally like a dolphin to take a breath and then vanishes again into what's happening for a while that surfaces. And you're like, oh, yes, there was a whodunit. We hadn't seen it in five chapters, so I forgot. <laughs> and and interestingly enough, uh, one of the major protagonists is called Mycroft Holmes. Mycroft Canner, no. Mycroft Canner, sorry. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I put that badly. Mycroft Canner, but, but the point I was trying to make is that Sherlock Holmes' older brother is called Mycroft, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, and that's discussed in the book as well. Right. Yeah, because the name in the twenty in this imagined twenty fifth century, the name Mycroft has become power popular again because there was an important statesman, uh, Mycroft Mason, in the twenty early twenty third century. I think it is. He he slap, laps across, uh, but Mycroft, our narrator, was named for the Mycroft in Mycroft's in Sherlock Holmes, uh, who is described especially the first time he's introduced as um, you know, being omniscient, right? Knowing everything, being connected with all of the central departments. Actually, that's discussed in the second story we see him and all of the different departments of government all send him their information and he, he works out uh, the, uh, the conclusions. But a man with no energy, unable to act on his own, uh, that he sits there with all the information but will not act unless pushed. Uh, and and a question which the narrator of my book raises, the question of whether this means Doyle, who wrote that story, thinks that an omniscient person would conclude that you should take no action, or whether this means that he thinks that this, this particular omniscient person is plagued by inertia and needs to be pushed. Either way, it reflects on our protagonist, who is a figure who, for re complex reasons that we figure out gradually, has access to and is interconnected with many, many nodes in the center of power and is intimate in different ways of many of the leaders of all of the hives, but uh, at least considers himself to be someone who never takes independent action and only takes action when commanded to take action by one of the people who's in a position to give that push. So where does that leave us? So we kind of discussed the title, the genealogy of that, the setting, some of the protagonists, the social and the political structures. So where does that take us? What does this give us? Does it take us back to our original topic of conversation here of the interplay between uh, social science such as history, uh, uh, science fiction, um, um, and, and, and maybe even futurism in general, or even our present in particular. Where, where does that lead us? I mean, it leads us to a lot of things because, you know, if it, if it had only one question or only one theme, it would have been a short story, not a very long four-volume series. It leads us to a lot of things, but I can name a couple that I think connect to what you're looking what at. What I'm trying to say is, is there like something that you can uh, share with a non-reader in advance mm. without sort of breaking the mystery that kind of unifies the four books or, or a threat or a... Uh, a thesis or a point or, or an overarching theme? 
I mean, there are, there are several, a number of them become most visible at the end. One of them that's visible, I think, throughout, or at least certainly by the time you're deeper into book one, is a lot of this is asking ourselves the question, is a future like this that is pretty good, better than the present on a bunch of metrics, the same as the present on a few other metrics, less good than the present on a few other metrics, uh, still changing, still in need of fixing, uh, still riddled with deep problems, which we're going to see break down and manifest their problems over the course of the story. If a world like that is what we get as the fruits of our efforts to make a future, is that okay? Is that good enough? Uh, because, you know, we work very hard to make the future better than the present. Right? A lot of us self-identify as contributing to making a better world, trying to advance causes, trying to pass on ideas, trying to come up with new concepts and add them to the great conversation, trying to increase justice, uh, trying to produce art and make the world more fair, more beautiful, more peaceful. And we have a vision of the future we're aiming at. And we tire ourselves out. We give and give and give and tire ourselves out. A lot of people are giving extra and tiring ourselves out more right now uh, in this particular moment, which feels very much like a period where a big push is needed uh, and where a crisis is here. If we wear ourselves out, if we give the gift of our hours, the only thing that you never get back, uh, if we give that gift to the future and what we get in return is a future like this, that isn't the future we envision. That's a future that's a little bit better, a little bit worse, a little bit alienating, that has different values from our values where some of the things we care deeply about have faded away and are forgotten. Other things that we care deeply about are, are strong and present and victorious. Uh, some countries we see have thrived. Some countries are conspicuously absent from what we hear about. Uh, is that okay? Because if we compare the projects of past future builders to the current year, right? If we look at past people who tired themselves out and gave their hours and their lifetimes to try to make a better world, if we look at Voltaire and we look at Diderot, if we look at early suffragettes, if we look at early environmentalists, if we look at anybody who really gave of themselves to try to make a better future, they got 2020. And it's sure a mix, right? It sure absolutely is a mix because boy, do we have better education and we have female suffrage and we've mostly conquered polio and we've definitely conquered smallpox and our life expectancy is up. And we have these systems of government that have all of these balances. So we have a lot more options to settle things peacefully before we get plunged into civil war again. Uh, we have concepts of civil rights and appeals courts. Boy, do we have a lot of great stuff compared to the 18th century. And boy, we have a lot of stuff that isn't great. That is the stuff that we're aware of right now that we're working on fixing. Uh, I wanted to show a future builder of today, a future like if we showed Voltaire 2020, to then ask the question, if the future you're working for doesn't turn out to be the one you imagine, if it turns out to be one that's really imperfect, like this one, not one that's stuck like that forever, one that continues to have change and continues to need work. 
one where we're way better on race in 20 in in the, my fictitious world we're better on race but much less better on gender for example uh do i think that's definitely going to happen no it could have i could have designed the world to be the other way around and i could have designed a future that was worse on race and better on gender um but you know a world where we've had partial victories some victories some failures where a lot of work still needs to be done is that worth it and I think the answer is yes. And I think pretty much everyone who fights to make a better world is going to answer yes. But we haven't usually been asked that question. We've usually been asked, is the world you dream of worth fighting for? And there the answer is an easy yes. Is the world you didn't dream of, but that has some of the stuff you're fighting for, worth fighting for? That's the harder question. Uh, and part of this is about recognizing that we don't have as much control over the consequences of our actions as we tend to imagine. That when we work really hard to advance a cause into the world, it might have an inadvertent effect that we never thought it would, right? Without suffragettes, you don't get the trans rights movement. Suffragettes didn't imagine the trans rights movement, and I'm sure there would have been plenty of suffragettes who would have been super uncomfortable with the trans rights movement. And there would have been other people who would have been delighted by the trans rights movement. We, you don't know. And similarly, if people right now are building My 2454, some current day you know, uh, future builders would be super uncomfortable with the set sets. And some would be wanting to defend the rights of set sets and we're going to feel different and divided about the consequences of our actions but the work we're doing right now is what's going to cause those we don't get asked that question very often we don't get asked is it worth it for a future that isn't your dream future that is a better but still very imperfect future and i wanted to ask that yeah, and that's kind of what, what I took uh, from the first three books. And of course, I have no idea what's happening in the fourth book because I haven't read that one yet. Uh, but uh, by the way, talking about the fourth book, when do you expect that to become available? A uh, year from last week, which is to say beginning of June of next June year. 2021. Yeah. Darn, it's a long time for me to it wait. I got hooked time, up now. Okay, so, but going back to the to the point here I was trying to make is that that's kind of what I got from it, which I like a lot as a message, is, is the idea that in a way the future you dream of is never to be. It never arrives. But the future that comes to be present may have some of the features that you dream of and may not have others. But that's okay. That's fine. That's okay. It's still a good future and it's still worth fighting for right. and it's still uh you know worth spending your life towards basically yep. sacrificing and you, and you still helped right you still helped make that future and make all the good things that are in it and it's not gonna have the good things in it if we don't try to make them so we have to but it's useful to say that also will mean a future that might be a little alienating to us that will have things in it that we aren't prepared for. And I want to grab that last idea though that 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 you you wanted to stress, which is very important, and it's that you or we helped make it. Yeah. Tell me about where does the individual fit within first history and mm -hmm. 
you know, concepts such as the laws of history from the historical point of view, and then switching your uh, historic uh, professor in history glasses with the glasses of a futurist science fiction author, where does the individual fit not within the past, but within mm. the future now? What have you learned from your kind of very strange mixture of expertise and interests spanning 10 different amazing geeky specific parts of history going through as we discussed viking ethics and mythology and harmony singing through speaking four or five languages including japanese teenager ninja boy kind of <laughs> slang uh, and being a science fiction slash futurist author where's the individual in all of this are we all just like sort of like uh, uh, helpless leaves floating on the water, or mm. do we have control over the events? So I want to answer that using two examples, which are very different from each other, that I think when you combine them gets my impression and the impression that I'm hoping the books will also give about history. Uh, one of them is Diderot's philosophical dialogue, Rameau's nephew. And the other is the simulation I run every year with my students of the papal election of 1492. Uh, so the writing style in Terra Ignota is an 18th century philosophical novel style based on Diderot, particularly based on his novel Jacques Le Fetilist, which is brilliant. Uh, but he has a dialogue, Ramos, I just love that work so much. It teaches you so much about writing, too. Uh, it's so geeky, I can't even like go into it. Like, And it's so weird and it's strange. the weirdest book well, the thing is before you read that book you believe that when you're reading a novel there's a social contract between the author and the reader the social contract has things in it like there'll be a structure where there's an introduction and a beginning and you get to know stuff and then there's a climax and then there's a denouement and and characters will be introduced and have character progression and and their stories will interweave in some way and then you read this and you realize no Campbell's yeah, only... idea of the of the hero's journey gets a little <laughs> bit, to say the least, messed up totally. The only like... contract between reader and author, as you realize as you're reading Jacques Le Fatalist, is that after you read each sentence, you will want to read the subsequent sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Diderot keeps that promise. He does not keep any other promise at any point. And you're you're just mind blown with the things that one can do uh, in that. But but it's Romo's nephew that uh, that I wanted to talk about. So in this one, it's a philosophical dialogue between Diderot is one of the interlocutors, and the other is the hypothetical Remo, who's the made-up uh, nephew of a more famous person called Remo, hence Remo's nephew. But what he actually is, is a perfectly rational human. Uh, Diderot is part of the 18th century, move toward the idea that if you examine human institutions with reason and get rid of the ones that are irrational, and embrace the ones that are rational and replace irrational laws with reason-based laws. Uh, if you replace irrational social customs with perfectly rational social customs, that that's better. That reason is, you know, good and leads to truth and that, that will make a better society. But as you see in this amazing dialogue, what you get is a scary society that doesn't have your values and that doesn't have your social mores and where you have no place. Uh, and so this is a philosophical dialogue between Diderot and Rameau, where Rameau is a perfectly rational human and therefore is per miserable and can't get along with anyone 
because he's constantly blunt and says exactly what he thinks and is honest and can't do social niceties. And if you say good morning and it isn't a good morning, he'll say, no, it's not. Uh, and if you ask, how are you, he'll actually answer the question instead of saying fine. Uh, and he's, you know, miserable. And he had a son and, and left his son at a foundling hospital because he knew that his son would be more happy raised somewhere else than raised by him who would pass on these terrible mores. But as you read it, you realize what Diderot is doing is, is realizing the future is like Rameau that he's dismantling his own world, his own values, his own social mores, that the generations that his educational revolution will bring about will make a world with no place in it for Diderot, uh, that he will find it scary and alien, that if he had a time machine and went forward in time 50 or 100 years to see the generation raised on his educational revolution, he would find them scary. He would feel uncomfortable in the way that conservatives today find themselves feeling uncomfortable when seeing the great breadth of strange self-expression that younger people are embracing right now. And Jacques Levate, sorry, uh, Roman's nephew is about Diderot assenting to that, assenting to dismantling his world and replacing it with one that will be scary and alien to him, but that he trusts will be better. Uh, and it poses a question which becomes a central question of the Terragnota series. Would you destroy this world to make a better one? Would you dismantle your society and make their and destroy this world for the sake of one which you will not have a place in, but which will be better than the one you have? Uh, and it's a beautiful thing to watch Diderot do because, of course, they do, right? You know, the result of the educational revolutions of uh, the mid 18th century are first the French Revolution and the US Revolution and then Nietzsche and Darwin and then all of modernity, which indeed would be terrifying and strange. And Diderot knew that it would be an assented to that anyway. He assented to destroying his world because he had confidence that the new one would be a better one, even though it wouldn't be one in which he would have a place. Even in uh, the, at the cost of making himself obsolete entirely in the process and finding a place that he does not belong afterwards. Exactly. But he had the courage to say that's worth it because it will be a better world for everyone else. Um, and that way of assenting to the world moving on is one I think we're rarely challenged to face. Uh, we're often asked about future building as if we had control over what that future is. Uh, and Diderot did in that he enacted this revolution, but he didn't in that he didn't control the outcome. Yeah, and that's a phenomenal question that I want to come back to after we discuss your... Uh, papal election. Yes, reenacting of the papal elections and the lessons you, you took from it. Right. So I talked before about how history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And also about how I think there are, you know, if-thens in history. If X is true, then Y will be the result. Right. Uh, so as we enter the 1490s in Italy... Uh, and Europe. There's a sort of perfect storm of instability. Uh, there's been centralization of power and wealth, armies are larger, but there's also been a, a kind of a musical chairs of thrones where pretty much every throne on Europe is occupied by somebody who doesn't have a good claim to that throne, but has a good claim to a different throne. You know, the King of Portugal has a there's a king of Aragon has a claim to Castile. The king, queen of Castile has a claim to Portugal. The king of Portugal has a claim to England. The king of England has a claim to France. The king of France has a claim to Naples. It's, it's just if everyone circled one throne to the right, 
it would all be it would all be more stable and everyone would have a more legitimate claim. And the papacy was getting more and more corrupt and more and more cardinals had been appointed in those few decades who were directly under the control of monarchs. So for a long time, there had always been one or two or a few cardinals that were under the control of the king of France or the king of England. But there had been a burst of kings bribing popes in return for popes appointing cardinals. So at this point, half or more of all the cardinals were there to be the stooge of some duke or king, which made the the political entanglements of the papacy unusually toxic in that set of decades. And we had just had some bellicose popes plow through Italy, starting wars and, and breaking down borders so that there weren't really legitimate lines that you could call the edges of territories. It's a perfect storm for everybody to want to have a war. Everybody in Europe wants to have a war, whether it's to press their claim to another throne or whether it's to try to conquer the town next to them, you know, because that border is now kind of squidgy and so they have a justification for it, or whether it's to push back somebody who's been pushing against you. Everybody wants to have a war. And so every year we do a simulation of this election in my class. And each student is either a different cardinal. Some of them are cardinals trying to become pope. Others are cardinals who aren't trying to become pope, who are just trying to advance the interests of different kings whose nephew or servant they are. Uh, some of the students are the kings and queens of Europe who, who manipulate thrones from the outside. Isabella of Castile, Beatrice, Queen of Hungary, um, uh, Henry VII, Maximilian Habsburg, these figures uh, pulling strings from the outside. And uh, they don't get to know the outcome. The students have to go into this not knowing what's going to happen. And there isn't a fixed outcome. It's not just a reenactment. They have resources that they can, they can bribe each other with and trade. They all have goals, which are the goals of that real historical figure. They go in, they elect a pope, they have a war. Uh, there's always a peace faction that's trying to make peace. They always almost feel like they're going to make peace. They never succeed at making peace. I didn't plan that. I put them in thinking, okay, maybe some, some years there will be peace, some years there won't. But what I found year after year is, no, there's never peace, but there's never the same war. Even if so they've elected tell us, the same tell peace. us how many times have you run this experiment and what are the major lessons? Right. So I've run it six times now, I think. Uh, and the war is always different. There's always a war. Even if it's the same pope, it'll be a different war because the same pope will coast to the top with the help of different people. Because there are always a couple of candidates who have advantages and are easier to elect. That either they have lots of backing or they have lots of allies or they have lots of money or they're really neutral and no one thinks of them as a threat. You know, so it always comes down to a few candidates. Interestingly, it always comes down to three. Two of them are always the same. One of them is always somebody that's never been before. Uh, it's always these, one, these two factions that inevitably form and then a third faction to oppose those two factions will form around an unpredictable additional person. In general, it'll be the France faction, the Spain faction, and the Italy trying to resist foreign conquest faction. And who the lead candidate for that third faction is has been different every year, depending on the skill or charisma or luck of different students and what strategies a different person tried. So it'll be a completely different person who rises to the fore of that faction, but that faction always forms. Again, the, it doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme, right? 
and they'll compete and it'll come down to three candidates and then one will get knocked out and it'll be two and then they'll eventually elect a pope and then after the pope there'll be a war and the war will always be about the same size but completely different in terms of which parts of Europe ally which with other parts and what gets invaded. What burns is different every year. It'll be Aragon one year. It'll be Genoa and sort of northwestern Italy another year. It'll be uh, Bavaria, Brittany, and Florence another year. It'll be different parts every time based on who angered whom, who got on the wrong side of the Pope, what promises the Pope made, who he made his second in command and lent the papal armies to. You know, sometimes it'll be Naples that's just devastated. It's different every year. So what I notice is therefore this hybrid, right? It's not that it's locked in and the same thing is going to happen, but it's also not that it's complete chaos and you can't predict at all what's going to happen. You could say, if then, if all of these forces are in play, then you're going to have a very explosive war right after this election that's going to tip the balance of power between France and Spain, which will therefore trigger something what it triggers and exactly where the armies of France and Spain go. Do they fight each other on the border of France and Spain? Or do they fight each other in Italy? Or do, does England get into the mix? Do they fight themselves somewhere else? That's determined by the individual actions of individual people. And sometimes it will be one particular cardinal who chose this faction over that faction. Sometimes it'll be one of the, one of the candidates who's always dominant, right? But he'll choose to recruit this king instead of choosing to recruit this king. And so the results will be different. Sometimes it'll be something really minor. I remember one year there was a major battle that was won by one faction because uh, some of the students play little unimportant people. They play the secretaries whose job is to count the votes, right? And, 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 some, and they have really modest goals. I want to raise or, you know, I want a job for my brother or, you know, I want to avenge the terrible thing that happened to my sister. And there was one year that one of the cardinals just trivially, you know, one of the secretaries had done a favor for him and he, he just gave him a couple of gold coins, which is more than that guy earns in a year, <laughs> which the cardinal who's sending enormous amounts of money back and forth didn't even think was important. And so that secretary then gave that cardinal secret maps to how to infiltrate the city from behind and win the battle. And then since that battle was won, the other battles moved on differently because that one particular unimportant secretary had decided to side with this person against that because of something they never even thought was important. Yeah, another year that there was a, a moment when uh, a, a particularly powerful power broker was deciding which of two candidates to support and went to one of them and said, would you like to have an affair with my sister? And he was like, no, I don't want to. I want to be a virtuous pope. And he's like, okay, then other guy it is because he's totally willing to have an affair with my sister. And so the other guy won because the first guy would, wouldn't commit adultery, right? And the, and, and the tiny, tiny decision moments that that are what caused the networks of power to the formations of alliances that then determine not whether there's a war, but what burns and what doesn't. So the comparison I like to use is in 1492, the dam was going to break, right? The floodwaters have built up behind this. There's going to be a giant European war. The dam is about to break. No one can stop it. But all of the individual people are digging channels to try to direct that floodwater away from their thick 
toward the enemy's thing, away from their thing. And it's those individual actions making those channels that determine which cities burn and which cities survive and what gets conquered and what doesn't and which kingdom expands and what kingdom contracts. And those in turn set up the next set of things that happen. So is it that giant forces are irresistible? Yes, nothing can stop that war. Is it that individual actions determine everything? Yes. Uh, and the individual actions they take will then determine how long it is until the floodwaters build up behind the dam again, right? Was there guaranteed to be another war in 1530? That depends on how well they manage the war of 1494. So the conclusion then being, well, yeah. Okay, go ahead, go yeah, ahead, yeah. That we don't have control, we do have power. It's a scary thing, realizing that you have power but not control. You don't know what the consequences of your actions are gonna be. They will have consequences and you can't determine what they'll be, but you still need to act because you can advance things, protect things, influence things. So we have control but no power. But No, other way around. We have power but no control. Yeah, very important, yeah, I messed it up. So we have power but no control. Okay, but from philosophical point of view, one always asks about responsibility because we may choose to exercise or not our power. So where's the responsibility fit within? Should we exercise control or should we not? And how do we make, because one of your main protagonists in your uh, uh, Teregnota series struggles with that question tremendously mm -hmm. as per whether he should get involved to which on the on behalf of which side he would get involved and by the way as a side note i can see how all this knowledge ex historical expertise that you have from like florence and all the wars in in italy like you know in in 14 15 16 1700s helped you create this kind of intricate realistic seven hive kind of a system um and they're sort of very int intricate political, social, cultural interplay in between, right? Like, mm -hmm. so I can see how that came useful very well here. But where's responsibility in all of this? Why, in other words, it's like asking why should one get involved, even if one does have the power to get involved? One of the positions in Taragnota, of course, is different groups of people have different attitudes toward that very kind of question, whether to act and whether or not. And if so, whether what you're supposed to be acting for, right? And the humanists are acting to perfect themselves and to in increase the sum total of human achievement by, by leaping that longer long jump and baking that more perfect loaf of bread uh, and producing that more exquisite uh, song. Uh, and, and thus expanding the sum total of human achievement. That is a great and worthy point of view and would say your obligation is to act, to try to do the best that you can and encourage others around you to do the best that they can to increase the sum total of human excellence. The cousins have a different attitude that the purpose is to nurture and help everyone around you and make a society that is kind, uh, to do whatever you do, but to do it kindly. Uh, and that your duty, therefore, ethically is to, to step forward and be the one who helps uh, and helps others and makes the kindest possible world. That's also a respectable and beautiful attitude to have. 
Uh, the Masons have the attitude that your duty is to the past uh, and to your ancestors and to preserve the values that they represent and to maintain and repair and, if possible, expand upon, but effectively uphold the dignity of what has been achieved and to continue it. That's a beautiful and worthy of respect attitude. Uh, the Brillists think that the best thing to do is to drill deeper into the possibilities of the human mind and unlock more and more human potential by becoming more and more inward almost and, and unlocking what it means to be human collectively, but you know, in a in a deeper, we aren't even we aren't even our full selves yet. We're still in the larval state of unlocking what a human brain can do. The utopians have a different kind of project, this project to disarm death blade by blade and reach the stars and to set aside everything else, including individual excellence, for being the one who lays a stepping stone in that path to allow that path to move as far as it can, even if that means not resting, even if that means pushing yourself harder. Uh, although they actually have to take a vow to rest uh, enough to allow their productivity to continue, all of those different attitudes toward the future and how you're supposed to act as a future builder are not wrong. All of them are worthy of respect. All of them respect each other in the books. And they're present here and today, right now, as we speak. And people in different cultures, in different nations, in different political structures and organizations exhibit many, if not all of them, and struggle with the same sort of decision-making and dilemmas that that you put in your books. And that's one of the reasons why I love it so much. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but then that kind of leads us back to the previous question, which I think is the best question to close the loop and bring us towards the end of our um, uh, conversation here. And that's whether it's worthwhile to destroy the world of today in order to build a better world tomorrow. Uh, because uh, that kind of was like what the French Revolution did, as you already pointed out. That's happened every time, pretty much, or most of the times when you've had a revolution. Uh, or, or at least you have to be willing and ready to destroy the current world if you were to proceed, you know, with, with the revolution in order to bring something better about. And of course... One of the things that I learned from, and I've become more conservative, and so let me share my personal bias here, is that originally many years ago, I would have said, yes, it is worth destroying this world to create a better one, because it will be a better one. My concern is that it rarely turns out to be as clean and simple. And I like your books precisely for that reason that you're telling us, look, the future is never going to be what you're dreaming of. It will have elements that you're dreaming of, but it's not going to be exactly, and it's not going to be even better in everything. It's going to be better in some ways, maybe not better in other ways, and maybe even a little bit worse in other ways. Mm -hmm. But so I would have said probably, yes, it's worth destroying to create something better. But now in the last maybe 10 years, I don't know if I'm getting older and more conservative, I am starting to see it more like which one of the French revolutionaries was it that said that revolution is a bloodthirsty monster that you once let out, it's very hard to put back in. Was mm -hmm. it Voltaire? No, uh, no, he's, he's dead before the revolution. Uh, no, was it Diderot? 
He's no. also dead before. I forgot I forgot who who it was but was maybe Robespierre. Mm. Uh and, and and the point was that you know once you start that process of undermining all the social structures and institutions and everything you can't con you lose complete control then from then on once you destroy everything you have no guarantee they'll be rebuilding or towards which way that rebuilding would go like mm -hmm. basically it's like gambling but but you're gambling at the civilization or at least national level so for me i'm now a lot more fearful to make that commitment of total destruction uh, of, of totally giving up and and I'm more of a pacifist now in the sense that uh, or, or not pacifist that's not the right word but more of a moderate in the sense that how can we preserve as much as we can from the past and build on top of it rather than s destroy everything so that we can start with a clean slate and I'm not saying that's right at all I'm just saying mm -hmm. I'm just sharing my kind of personal predisposition towards it which may be age related by the way because right. now i'm like 44 years old so i'm a lot less adventurous than when i was 20 years old when i would have easily gone for the other way let's just have revolution and burn the, everything so so where's that take us what what's the what what what's what's your thought on this kind of fundamental question mm -hmm. so there are two separate questions there. One is about, you know, burn it to the ground revolution type change and the other is more broadly about change. And I'll segue from A to B. The present is self-destroying, right? The, the current world is, is changing. It's going to change. If, if nobody tries to change it, it'll change anyway. For sure, yeah. It is changing. The question is, do we actively try to shape that change or do we not? Uh, because even if there's the least change, even with minimal change, the way the world is changing is the way, uh, if you visit a place you used to live, right? Or a place you visit your old college or you visit where you grew up and some things are very familiar, but also there's a new weird building that wasn't there before. And also that restaurant that you loved is gone and instead there's a city bank, right? And, and it hurts uh, because something is not what it was and it was precious and it's gone and you have to sort of face that and you're mourning for a part of the world that doesn't exist anymore, that did, but doesn't, except that it does. And so it's even more eerie than if it were gone, because uh, it's almost right, but where's the restaurant instead, there's the city bank. That's gonna happen. Um, and if ha history has patterns and rules in it, one of the things that's gonna happen, uh, let's imagine a world where nobody has a sense of <laughs> altruistically improving the world and, and, and people don't have that. Then people are yeah. gonna be trying to defend what they have and entrench what they have. In the world of the Middle Ages and Renaissance before the idea of anthropogenic progress comes in in 16th century, active efforts to change the world are largely active efforts to entrench power. Um, and so what you watch over time is the centralization of power and elites becoming more elite and wealthy becoming wealthier and those who exercise power are exercising more of it, right? There's a reason that 
that restaurant on the corner turned into a city bank. It didn't turn into another beautiful, independent, different restaurant, right? It turned into a city bank or it turned into a chain restaurant because we're watching that entrenchment of power happen. So your choices aren't keep the world I have or work to make a better one. Your choices are keep the, uh, let the world move toward the entrenchment of power so that the small, beautiful, fragile, independent restaurants are replaced by the city banks and the Starbuckses. And so that those medieval states, which were fairly decentralized, transition into Renaissance states, which have more wealth and larger armies and are more difficult to change and able to wreak more destruction. Or do you work to try to shape that change to protect that indie restaurant or to when there's an opportunity because there's a thing there, start an independent bookstore. And if the independent bookstore is struggling, create an online system for independent bookstores to help each other. Do you try to make that change be good? Or do you sit back and let that change be the one kind of change that always seems to happen, the further entrenchment of power? And you already said it brilliantly well, by the way, which is probably going to be the main best talk that I'm going to take from this conversation with you today, and it would resolve my dilemma that I just shared with you and my sort of ideological development or predisposition will be now taken to another point with your advice that in this, just like in any situation, we have the power to act, so we better use it. Unfortunately or fortunately though, we have to recognize we don't have the control over the outcome. But we do have the chance and the power to act and therefore the responsibility even because we can. And so with better, we should go for it. That's my lesson from this whole conversation and from your book. And thank you for that, because that's kind of like really, really helping me now to have a new predisposition, abandon my previous predisposition and now have a new one. I have the power to act. I'd better act, therefore, rather than sit and watch, rather than be a spectator in the, you know, global TV coronavirus or Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter or what have you. I don't have control over the outcome, but I have power and to act and therefore responsibility to do so. And I love that. I absolutely love that. Well, I think an important principle related to that and which the book tries to show as well is partial victories are victories, right? When you push for a change and you get part of it, you got part of it. And that doesn't mean you stop pushing for better, but it doesn't mean it wasn't worth it either. Uh, When you put all of your effort into supporting a political candidate and that political candidate isn't the victor, but pushed the discourse and advanced some principles and other candidates that you were supporting did win, right? Those are victories. They do achieve something. And in fact, almost all victories are partial. When we judge things by what we were aimed at and say it was a failure if we didn't get what we aimed at, then almost everything always is a failure, right? And Michelangelo was constantly complaining that the David's right arm is wrong. And, you know, nothing, no matter how perfect a masterpiece we consider it to be, is ever actually 100% that victory. So if we let our spirits break when we don't get what we wanted and we instead get partial victory, that's when we fail is when we stop pushing for that partial victory at all and then we get none. Partial victory isn't a stopping point. Uh, And it's wrong to stop and give up 
but it's also wrong to stop and not push for more. You 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 need to keep going. But Progress is basically sequence yeah. of partial victories in your yeah. Yeah, and there's no such thing as a non-partial victory. Um, and so, no matter how much we you know, it it hurts watching the better option slip through your fingers. It hurts knowing it it was almost there and then it didn't come. Right? We almost elected Piccolomini, and he would have been such a great pope. Uh, so much better than the person that we did elect as Pope. And you're but, you know, we elected the third worst Pope. And that's better than electing the worst Pope. Um, or, you know, we elected a bad Pope, but we kept him in check somewhat. And, and, and you know, those victories are real. Um, and, it, and they're it's worth hard. fighting for. They're absolutely worth fighting for. They're the fight we're in. Uh, and they're the fight that means that there's a new indie restaurant there instead of a wall of Citibank Starbucks, Citibank Starbucks, uh, which is what we get if we sit back and just like watching all the amazingly diverse, interesting little tiny polities of the Middle Ages get consolidated into state, 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 state. Um, I think in a way, while it's painful to accept the fact that fighting to build a better future won't build the future you want. It prepares you better for expecting partial victories, not full victories, and therefore not suffering that dagger to the heart that makes you unable to carry on when what you get is a partial victory and not a real victory. Uh, there's a wonderful Viking scholar called Maja who I've been following on Twitter. She's fabulous, but she, she made a remark the other day Nobody is helped if by you sinking. Nobody is helped by you going down. Uh, this is part of a take care of yourself. You know, self-care is important. You need to keep fighting until you can tell you're going to break and then stop. But one of the things that makes us go down is when we aren't prepared for those victories to be partial. When we're so dead set on the victory we really, really, really desperately want that we haven't prepared ourselves for coping with the in-between. Uh, and so I think a part of preserving your own ability to keep helping long-term, to not give up when the youthful energetic revolution doesn't come, right? To keep going and work on the more step-by-step, grown-up, incremental change. I think one of the things that helps you be prepared for that is accepting the fact that you aren't building the future of your dreams. You're just building a future that has some of the things you dream of in it. I love that because it's a, it's a great personal attitude and, and, and a way to approach things, which kind of reminds me too of this very sort of a Zen attitude of the fact that the universe is perfect just as it is, or the stoic idea of gratitude. And that's where you're, sort of partial victories mm. come comes in it's like we should be really we should be grat grateful about our partial victories so so that's kind of like a the half full cup if you will in a different version which is very nice uh because it gives us to appreciate the fact that it is half full and that's halfway to full and it's not the full cup but it's it's so much better than we started with the empty cup mm -hmm. and and so that's still worth celebrating even if we didn't get the full cup and we should be grateful for it and we should be appreciative and there's nothing wrong in the sense that it's not a failure if you get a half cup 
Well, and, and beyond grateful, because gratitude often means you feel as if it's a gift to you from the outside, which is what stoicism pushes, the idea that the good things that you enjoy are a gift to you from the universe. But that's a useful way to think about it. But you can also think about it as like, I filled that cup halfway. Yeah, I and do. the team that we worked hard on, we did it. And that cup is halfway full, right? And and we had a fundraising goal. We didn't hit our fundraising goal, but we got a chunk of the way for our fundraising goal. And boy, did we buy a bunch of vaccinations for kids. And we didn't buy vaccinations for all of the kids, but we bought vaccinations for 70% of the kids. And that is great, right? And, that's, and it's not just a question of being grateful to the outside world, but you get to be proud of partial victories. And it's never over until you say it's over. So you can always... Turn and vaccinate those kids next. Right. With another partial victory and another partial victory. And then after 10 partial victories, you're like further ahead than you've ever been. Yep. But then we aspire higher and our cup is bigger. But that's what it means to be human. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I love the fact that we even closed the loop with the Viking sort of angle of how mm. you quoted the Viking scientist. That was perfect because we started with that about your interest in Viking mythology and ethics and how it is very different than our traditional uh, sort of like, uh, should I say Christian or Western world? I, uh, I often say Mediterranean. Mediterranean, okay. Because, because of the it's, Greeks. Yeah, right. Okay. And Greek and Roman, but also Middle right. East. But the you know Mediterranean religions tend to presume a fundamentally fertile world. Sure, which, because it's you know, nice. You can actually nice, go on the beach, yeah, you know. catch some fish, start a fire, and you have food. You know, it's not so bad. But if you're like somewhere in Scandinavia in the winter, God help you, you know, and the polar bears and everything. Right. And I think it's a useful, it's a useful worldview to, for us to visit because that Mediterranean worldview that the world is fundamentally okay and if we sort of relax and do minimal things, it'll be okay. You know, it's very reassuring. But the Viking worldview is there won't be the good things unless we make them. There won't be a good space for us to live unless we build it. There won't be kindness in the world unless we carve out space for it to exist. There won't be warmth. There won't be shelter. The world is difficult and it isn't optimized for our survival from the beginning we have some good you know survival adaptations but the world isn't fundamentally fine until we wreck it the world is fundamentally difficult and we're building it and we're building those shelters and we're building those pleasures and we're building those achievements and we have to keep carving out that space between the ice and the fire uh, and make it last as best and as long as we can and do our best to make it better. And unlike the Vikings, we don't have to expect that it must someday end in Ragnarok. But it's not going to exist if we don't build it. Well, Ada Palmer, we are approaching again about two hours and 45 minutes or something thereabouts, which is about the length of our first conversation. So this is the moment where I want to ask you, where can, because I can speak to you literally for weeks and for hours, <laughs> For, for, for months even. like uh, So now I'll be eagerly awaiting your fourth book, which is a, a year-long waiting period, unfortunately. But where can people find more about you in the meantime and about the work that you do? So you can get the Terra Ignota books anywhere you can get books. Uh, 
I recommend especially bookshop.org, which is a great place that you can order things online at prices pretty close to Amazon's prices, except that the money goes more toward independent bookshops. You can actually select an independent bookshop near you to get the sales cut, even though you're ordering it online. Um, so bookshop.org. Uh, you can also find info about me at adapalmer.com. My blog is exurbe.com, E-X-U-R-B-E. So that's where you can find my essays on history and and fandom and gelato. Uh, but most recently, my essay on the Black Death and COVID and what the Renaissance can teach us about 2020. Uh, you can find my music linked from the website, The Viking Music. Uh, and generally, any other projects I'm doing, you can find there or through Twitter. I'm at, at Ada underscore Palmer. Uh, and you can find me there. So currently, I'm working on a nonfiction book about why we keep telling the myth of the Renaissance. I'm working toward the new novel series about Vikings. And I'm also working with some friends putting together a fundraiser to support independent bookstores during the COVID shutdown by arranging for people to buy books from them to then be sent to people in prisons, uh, especially science fiction and fantasy, because it turns out about a third of all the requests that uh, these charities that supply books to incarcerated people get are for science fiction and fantasy. So we can wow. support our shut down FNSF specialist bookshops during the emergency by buying books from them to then be sent to people who will really uh, benefit from having the ability to explore other worlds and different better ways the future could be while thinking about how to build lives. Wow, that's incredible. I was not aware that science fiction is the third most popular genre in prisons, but it kind of makes sense. And I just watched yesterday, 13th, that documentary from Netflix about uh, sort of racism and Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. which is, I, I'd say, must watch for, for anyone. But how do we kind of wrap up our conversation today? Because I have this kind of tradition now to always give the podium the last word to my guests. So we spend a wide variety, again, of, of conversation today, topics, etc. What do you want to send us away with? I think we've come to a lot of good conclusions about ways to think about the world in terms of gradualness and partial victories. I think when we look at fiction, especially science fiction and fantasy, we very frequently see the revolutionary narrative where there's a problem, therefore we blow up the system and then we stop the narrative so we don't have to deal with the hard part, which is building a better system afterward. You don't see a lot of stories that are doing the, the hard second half of what do we implement now that we've burned out what was there before. Uh, and you very rarely see the, let's do this without burning anything down. Let's do the incremental change thing. It's hard to narrativize. Uh, but there's a reason we worked really hard to develop systems of government that allow us to do incremental change. And we want to push it to be as fast as we can, but to make use of that system. And I think the other final thing is I think everyone needs to hear right now I do a lot of self-care and self-care training within our university, but I'm a chronic pain sufferer. I have to balance very challenging medical issues that mean I really have to watch and take care of myself or I lose the ability to work at all. Uh, and a lot of people I've talked to in the chronic pain world have observed, interestingly, that the self-care strategies you need for chronic pain and the self-care strategies you need for coping with the current COVID and emergency crisis are very similar to each other. Um, so repeating a couple of those useful ways to think about it, no one is helped by you sinking. Pushing yourself beyond breaking point, even if it's to help other people, destroys your ability to help those other people later. 
Um, so this really is a put on your own oxygen mask to preserve your ability to then help others situation. Uh, but especially to not feel shame or blame right now if we're not producing at 100%. No one on earth is producing at 100% right now. We have study after study showing how fear and anxiety, which we're all experiencing chronically now, cause accumulated trauma that makes the brain just not function. No one on earth is, is producing right now at above 70% of what they normally do. So judge yourself by that and don't judge yourself more harshly. Um, if we all output our 70% and work hard on choosing what it should be and work on the best things that we can and take care of each other and work on doing so kindly. We will get our partial victories. Yeah, we will get our partial victories. But if we burn out, if we don't put on the oxygen mask first, that's when we don't get the partial victory. That's when it goes down. Well, Ada Palmer, that was very well said. I have to say, um, I really enjoyed this conversation with you again, and it will, I'll leave to our audience to say if we manage to equal or maybe even surpass our first uh, uh, interaction. So uh, once again, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 